court. La cour. Please be seated. In the case of Talbinder Singh Punyan et al. against the British Columbia Securities Commission. For the appellants, Talbinder Singh Punyan et al., Cody G. Reedman. For intervener, Superintendent of Bankruptcy, Zoe Oxal and Roy Lee. For the respondent, British Columbia Securities Commission, William L. Roberts, and Laura L. Beaven, and Sarah B. Annigan. For the intervener, Attorney General of Ontario, Susan Keenan, Jake Eidinger. For the intervener, Attorney General of British Columbia, Aaron Welsh, and Heather Wellman. For the intervener, Attorney General of Saskatchewan, Jared G. Biden, for the Intervener Federation of Law Societies of Canada, Devin Eagle, and Claire Hunter KC. For Intervener Alberta Securities Commission, Michael B. Forth, Raphael T. Egan, and Brandon Barnes Trickett. For the Intervener Ontario Securities Commission, Erin Olt and Christina McMillan. For the intervener, Osgood Investor Protection Clinic, Stephen Aylward and Karen Bernofsky. For the intervener, Canadian Association of Insolvency and Restructuring Professionals, C. Hayden Murray, Heather Fisher, and James Aston. Mr. Reedman. Good morning, Chief Justice, Justices. May it please the Court. This appeal concerns a matter of statutory interpretation with a significant implication for bankruptcy and solvency law, but also administrative law and regulatory bodies' ability to enforce their debts against bankrupt individuals or companies. Uh, this appeal is an appeal from the British Columbia Court of Appeal on, on whether the Court correctly interpreted Section 178 sub 1A D and E of the Bankruptcy and Solvency Act. But more broadly, this is also an appeal, uh, oh, while it's also an appeal of the BC Court of Appeal, it, this appeal also asked the court to consider whether the Alberta Court of Appeal in Hennig was correct in its interpretation as each had a different interpretation of, of these subsections. The appellants uh, will submit that the court below in Punian and the Court of Appeal in Hennig correctly interpreted Section 178 sub 1 sub A of the Bankruptcy and Solvency Act and that the respondent's financial sanctions don't fall within that section. The appellants will submit that when applying the principles of statutory interpretation that a court can only mean a provincial superior or inferior court which would respect Parliament's criminal law powers and Parliament did not extend this section to include administrative tribunals such as the respondent and that those provisions were not broadly enough to include registrations of a judge 
a, a judgment uh, to be registered in a court for enforcement purposes, irrespective of whether it was imposed as a result of a contravention uh, of an offence under a statute. Further, the appellants will submit that there is not sufficient argument in the court below <coughs> dealing with section 178 sub 1 sub D, and that this uh, court should leave the issue uh, to, uh, for another day. Lastly, the appellants will submit that the British Columbia Court of Appeal below erred in its interpretation of section 178 sub 1 sub E in three respects. One, that this court has already held a direct link between a creditor and the representation, oh, sorry, uh, in three respects. First, the error is that this, the court below held that a direct link between a creditor and the representation was not required, and that this court has already held that direct link is required in Montreal City and Deloitte restructuring. That the compensation scheme provided for in the British Columbia Securities Act, section 151 and regulations had overcome the, the requirement for a link. And three, that uh, the conduct issues that are raised by the respondents uh, when looking at the scheme of the Bankruptcy Insolvency Act can be better dealt with in Section 172, which is the discharge provisions of the Bankruptcy Insolvency Act, and that the respondent does have a remedy, and I'll address that with, in my submissions as well. And we say, as, uh, as these are matters of statutory interpretation, they're reviewable on a correctness standard. Before turning uh, to our arguments uh, with respect to the proper interpretation of these statutory provisions, the, the first uh, step would be is to look at the purpose of the Bankruptcy Insolvency Act, the scheme as a whole. This court, in two decisions at 407 ETR Concession Company Limited and the uh, Superintendent of Bankruptcy, and its companion case in Alberta AG and Maloney held that there's two underlying principles animating the Bankruptcy Insolvency Act, which is one, the equ equitable and efficient distribution of an insolvent debtor's assets to his or her creditors, and number two, the financial rehabilitation of the bankrupt. Upon an insolvent debtor, a consumer debtor making an assignment into bankruptcy, uh, if there is no opposition filed by a creditor, the trustee or the super uh, by a creditor, the superintendent of bankruptcy, or the trustee, and the debtor complies with their duties under the Bankruptcy Insol uh, Insolvency Act, a debtor is entitled to an automatic discharge, an administrative discharge, if you will, that they are then released from the bankruptcy process. Uh, and that there's a release of claims under Section 172, or sorry, 178 sub 2 of the Bankruptcy Insolvency Act. However, if an opposition is filed, the matter will proceed to court before a registrar in bankruptcy to adjudicate the matter with a view of maintaining the principles underlying the Bankruptcy Insolvency Act. And the discharge may be opposed on various grounds found in Section 173 sub A of the Bankruptcy Insolvency Act. For a consumer debtor, the financial rehabilitation is obtained by an order of discharge which marks the cooperation of the bankrupt with the trustee, their compliance with duties imposed under the Bankruptcy Insolvency Act, and the absence of an objection or the adjudication of a registrar of the bankrupt circumstances. Now, on a discharge hearing, a registrar in bankruptcy does exercise their discretion on the disposition 
and then tailors that disposition to a bankrupt situation and the court has a number of, of options uh, which is that the court can impose a absolute order of discharge a suspended discharge conditions which could include a monetary pe uh, component or refuse the discharge with or without leave to reapply and in this case, Mr. Ridman, uh, the discharge was refused. That is correct. The discharge was refused by the registrar. That was then further appealed to a judge and also to the British Columbia Court of Appeal that upheld the refusals. Okay. And the bankrupts do remain undischarged bankrupts. Okay. Uh, well, the appellants remain undischarged bankrupts. But is... I think the whole point of what we're looking at in 178.1 is to see where there is no discretion. That is correct. And so that's what we need to focus on. Yes, absolutely, and I'll be turning there very shortly. Okay. And that was going to be my, uh, my very next breath, which is that uh, the financial rehabilitation of the bankrupt, which is known as the fresh start principle, is not absolute. And a discharge only permits the release of debts found in 178 sub 2 of the Bankruptcy Insolvency Act, subject to the exemptions in 178 sub 1 of the Bankruptcy Insolvency Act. This court in, in Industrial Acceptance Corp. Ladond, which is uh, cited in our factum, has again stated uh, the underlying purpose is that the, the purpose and object of the Bankruptcy uh, Act is to equitably distribute the assets of the debtor and permit his rehabilitation as a citizen unfettered by past debts. Now, when turning to section 178 sub 1, uh, there, uh, some of the case law has identified, and we say that with respect to uh, the 178, that there's no overarching master rationale for these sections, except that the Parliament has raised a number of social and policy rationales, uh, ranging from excluding spousal and child support obligations, student loans, and so forth, uh, that uh, the release of a bankruptcy uh, uh, are, is not afforded uh, to a debtor. Uh, these provisions are listed in full in our condensed book as well. You agree that uh as the court has said, these exceptions are to be interpreted narrowly, not because of some special rule of construction in the bankruptcy context, but because that is the result of a textual, contextual, and purpose of interpretation of 178, given that Parliament's forging these various competing policy objectives under the Bankruptcy Act, and that it's that delicate balance that leads to a narrow interpretation to the exceptions, right? Yes, and that is something that we grappled with in our, our factum, and that, that's where the interpretation comes in, that we say a narrow analysis is that you have to view the scheme as a whole, that it, it's the starting point is the rehabilitation of the bankrupt and the equitable distribution of a, a debtor's assets through a, a trustee, and that the exceptions should be uh, interpreted narrowly. And one of the reasons why we also say uh, it will be part of our submissions is that the, ex the exceptions ought to be interpreted narrowly because the widening of every exception uh, results in a reduction of a debtor's ability to reintegrate back to commercial life and to achieve a fresh start. And it's really also because these are mandatory um, uh, exclusions from discharge rather than discretionary ones. So Part of the contextual is to read 178 in light of 172, presumably. 
That's correct. And so it is a binary remedy. The court doesn't have discretion if they do determine that a debt falls within section 178 sub 1. The debt must survive. The court can't then further decide that it can be compromised. And that's where we say uh, section 172 is better suited for some of the complaints raised by uh, the respondents with respect to their financial sanctions. And Mr. Whitman, when I read the decisions of the Court of Appeal and the um, Supreme Court, the BC Supreme Court, and even when I read ENIG, it seems that this uh, global framework has not been considered, I mean, uh, by the judges, with all due respect, like the, the, the other discharge provisions in 172 and 173, it seems that it has not been uh, analyzed in, the case, in those cases. No, and it didn't appear in the decisions below that uh, there was much treatment given to the discharge provisions uh, by either in Hennig or in Punian, except for a brief reference to the, the, uh, the background with respect to the, the court at first instance. Uh, so uh, we would agree with that, that there wasn't a, a fulsome analysis of the interplay Mr. between yeah. the discharge provisions. Mr. Reedman, you uh, started by saying that uh, 178 sub 1 sub A did not extend to administrative tribunals. Yes. Um, I, I guess, um, well, for one thing, it says it only relates to an order imposed by a court. So my question to you is, how many other administrative tribunals have the ability to register their orders with the Supreme Court and have them treated um, uh, as a judgment of the Supreme Court? That is an excellent question. I, I don't have that handy with respect Are to... Are there many? Uh, so in the Ontario, the province of Ontario, in their fact, and they had identified over, uh, I believe, 40 different uh, tribunals that would have the effect of uh, being able to register their uh, fines or penalties in a court. And so this was going, this is preempting one of my arguments about floodgates. And the fact that it goes to the broadening of the types of liabilities that will, will survive bankruptcy and also a restructuring as well because these provisions would equally apply to the restructuring of a company either a CCAA or a Division I proposal as well. And so with respect to Ontario alone, they had upended to their factum some 40-something statutes where uh, tribunals would be able to impose penalties. And that's just the province registered of, with the with the court. That is correct, okay. and that's just the province of Ontario. And you don't know for BC. I okay. not not definitively uh, from BC. And so we would say that when we're looking at the interpretation of Section 178 sub 1, that the ordinary principles of statutory interpretation should apply, which is the well-cited provisions that the words of an act are to be read in their entire context, in their grammatical and ordinary sense, harmoniously with the scheme of the act, object of the act, and intention of parliament. Uh, further, and more recently, this court in La Presse Inc. and Quebec uh, 2013 SEC 22, which is in our condensed book, has provided some helpful um, uh, statements uh, when uh, applying a statutory interpretation at paragraphs 22 and 23, uh, noting that the plain meaning in itself is not determinative and it must be tested against other indicators of legislative meaning, which is context, purpose, and rele relevant legislative norms, in order to then determine their context. And then the court went on to say that 
if a provision is ambiguous in the sense contemplated in Bellevue Express Partnership and Rex, uh, if the words can be reasonably interpreted in more than one way after due consideration of their context in which they appear and the purpose of provisions, uh, that's when the court would then engage in uh, interpreting uh, the provisions. But here we would say that um, the proper approach is, as we heard uh, that I would say uh, those earlier, is that the provision should be interpreted narrowly because again, the overarching principles are, are debtor rehabilitation and an efficient and effective uh, distribution of a debtor's assets. And, and so that's a theme that I'll be continuing to return to. I mean, I might put it slightly differently. I see a possible rationale for giving a narrow interpretation being that it in fact impinges upon the discretion of the judge to craft, for example, conditions, a conditional discharge. Um, and, 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 you know, the, the, the judge exercising a broad discretion, I think, is, is um, generally viewed as, as an important component upon, of, of the overall scheme. And therefore, to the extent that you take away the discretion of the judge, you limit it, uh, it should be for a very clear purpose. Uh, yes, absolutely, and and to that point, what we see in the Bankruptcy Insolvency Act is that there are provisions dealing with uh, with tax debts, income tax debts of high income tax debtors, where Parliament has mandated that the registrar must turn their attention to certain factors uh, when a an individual, and this is in our factum, is a high uh, uh, tax debtor. And in that case, a parliament has imposed that the discretion is not fettered, but the court must uh, bring their attention to four factors when they're conducting their analysis before a debtor is, uh, receives their discharge. In Section 178, it's a binary remedy. There is no discretion. Mr. Ridman? I'm on the screen. Hello. Um, uh, I'm just... Um, wanting you to address at some point or maybe even throughout your submissions the fact that one of the distinctive features of this case is that it is a combination of administrative penalties and a disgorgement order um, and in most of the previous cases that you've cited uh, there has not been a disgorgement order so if you are making any different type of argument in respect of the two orders i'd be very interested in hearing um, uh, how it is you go about treating those two different types of orders. Yes, uh, that will become a little bit later in my submissions, but I do intend to address that point. And actually, that's a, a segue into uh, the, one of our first arguments, which is that uh, I'll first address Section 178 sub 1 sub A of the Bankruptcy Insolvency Act, and then I'll then address Section 178 sub 1 sub E, which then, and part of them will overlap with some of the uh, dealing with the disgorgement remedies. So, uh, given the fact that you, you are now at the interpretation of 178 1A, I just want to clarify something because you said at the beginning of your submissions that uh, we agree with, uh, you agree with the interpretation of the BC Court of Appeal. Yes. Uh, but the BC Court of Appeal uh, was of the view that uh, the type of fine, penalty, restitution order 
uh, or other orders similar in nature were not limited to criminal and quasi-criminal uh, cases. Yes. Uh, do you agree with that position or not? I know your position about imposed by a court, and you will discuss it, but I would like to know on that first point, because we have those two uh, issues regarding 178.18. Yes, so with respect to our, our position on that uh, particular point is that it can be a broader... It can go beyond the criminal or quasi-criminal... Uh, it, correct, yes. And so, uh, for example, it could be civil contempt, okay. uh, which is in the nature of quasi-criminal uh, fines that could be uh, imposed. But we then go on, it will be our position that it doesn't go so far as to include uh, administrative tribunals or regulatory bodies who are then registering their judgments by court. And one of the reasons why we say this is that uh, when we're in looking to an interpretation of the Bankruptcy Insolvency Act, uh, uh, Justice uh, in the, Henning in the Court of Appeal, at paragraphs 36 through 40, which is also in our condensed book, uh, helpfully addressed and looked at uh, language specifically dealing with regulators. And, the court in that case looked at the provisions of the bankruptcy dealing with the state proceedings, but also there is another provision in 69.6 uh, dealing with whether or not, and this is at our condensed book at page um, tab two, page eight. This is just coming from the legislation. Yes, and that's condensed book, uh, page five. And so when uh, we're looking to uh, in interpret the Bankruptcy Insolvency Act, this appears to be the only reference to uh, a regulator or administrative body. And Parliament has already seen fit to, de uh, to define the definition of regulatory body, which we would say includes the respondent and it expressly deals with provisions of the act on whether or not uh, that a interested person, so, uh, uh, so a, a debtor could get some uh, direction from the court as to whether or not a regulatory body is acting as a creditor or acting in their public interest capacity. Uh, and we say that this is very informative and this was also analyzed by Hennig at the Court of Appeal as being a very significant factor when analyzing the provisions of section 178 sub 1. Uh, n notably because uh, there was expressed language in this provision, however there was not expressed language in the provision of 178. And then what I would say further is you know, when we're also looking at the definition of court which is been one of our arguments throughout is that when we're looking at the definition of court in the Bankruptcy Insolvency Act Section 2, it does exclude Section 178, but it also excludes Section 204, which is the bankruptcy offense provisions. So it, it will be our position that when we're looking at Section 178, sub 1, sub A, that it clearly the context is colored by these criminal law components. So, Mr. Mr. Uh, Reedman, if I can follow up on Justice Cote's questions, uh, question, uh, 178-1A has three conditions, essentially. The case law has distilled it to three conditions. Yes. You concede uh, all of the, 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 the two of the conditions, except 
imposed by a court. You say your clients clearly win on it's not imposed by a court. The other two you'd be prepared to concede. Is that, is that fair? That would be a fair to concede. And, and I say that there's good reason that for that is that a, a court can only mean well, maybe not only, but uh, we would submit that uh, the court can, uh, can, in this context, should only mean a provincial inferior court, a criminal court, or a superior court. But with respect to the other two, yes, we would concede. And the, the homologation provision, the fact that it can be registered with a uh, court, uh, it may be that if we weren't dealing with the Bankruptcy Act, that that may be sufficient. But given the rule of narrow interpretation that we're directed to apply by Maloney that uh, uh, even if there were a bit of elasticity in those words uh, the, the tie goes to the bankrupt in, in this case because of the rule of narrow construction. Is that fair? That would be fair to say, yes. And we would also uh, note that there's uh, some underlying policy reasons why that, that would be appropriate as well, which is that, and this will be dealt with more in the superintendent of bankruptcy's um, uh, submissions and it appears in their factum, which is that under administrative proceedings, there's uh, not the, uh, the same safeguards that we would see in criminal law proceedings. There's no right to silence, that there's a lower standard of proof, it's beyond a reasonable, it's on a balance of probabilities versus a beyond a reasonable doubt standard. And there can also be a, a right to counsel. And uh, justices, well, this was in the original, uh, in the materials, and uh, perhaps not, it was pronounced in the factums. The appellants in this particular case did also uh, self represent before the commission extensively uh, as well, uh, before they, uh, they later uh, retained counsel after the, the initial sanctions um, decision was imposed. And there is some additional basis for this, which is uh, Justice Wilkinson at, in Punian uh, writing for the BC Court of Appeal at paragraphs 40, 34 to 49, uh, which is at tab 7 and page 46 of our condensed book, also go, provides his analysis for the rationale underlying this section. And, and we submit that this um, this rationale is persuasive uh, to the extent that that when we're looking at the words imposed by court, the words uh, imposed doesn't, it doesn't extend to anything more than just simply using the machinery of the court for enforceability purposes and allowing a different enforcement uh, of that decision within a uh, province and I expect that you'll hear from my uh, friends the respondents that um, there's more significance to that that there's a um, that there's a, a more significance uh, for that and I'll let them speak to that but with respect to our submissions uh, we would submit that there's merely a passive role in the court accepting the decision for filing which merely upholds the decision for enforcement purposes and, the and that when interpreting the provision, the appellants submit that, uh, real, uh, that these would be more or less in the nature of public debts. And it, at the end of the day, it's, um, 
the, court, uh, the court must take into account the context, purpose, and legislative intent in, in its context. And we say that, again, the context of this provision is also important looking at uh, what we say the narrow interpretations ought to be, and also in looking at the definitions of court in the Bankruptcy and Solvency Act. In particular, uh, when we're looking at Section 178 sub 1 sub A, uh, and I had alluded to this earlier, is that the definition of court is excluded in two respects, one under Section 178 sub 1 sub A, and then under Section 204, the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act, dealing with the prosecution of bankruptcy offenses. And what we say uh, submit is that this is important because it provides additional context for the intention of Parliament had considered when specifically excluding the, the word court from the Bankruptcy and Solvency Act. And Section 2 is important because otherwise that would include a superior court of a, of a province or a territory. And then lastly, one of the, the submissions we would make with respect to 178 sub 1 sub A is it does raise an issue as to floodgates. Um, as can be seen in the province of Ontario's factum, they, see, uh, they would have a, over 40 administrative tribunals and regulatory bodies whose administrative fines could survive a discharge from bankruptcy on, if the court were to broaden section 178 sub 1 sub A. And that would be across the country that there would be various federal and provincial bodies that would then be able to avail themselves of, of that section. There is some dispute as to whether or not the penalty would have to be imposed in respect of an offense or not in order to survive under that section. However, the effect would be is to frustrate, significantly frustrate the fresh start principle. And at the end of the day, the provision itself is, is silent on administrative tribunals. We say that there, uh, that Parliament elsewhere had turned its mind to expressly including uh, regulatory bodies as a defined term. Similarly, they could have uh, made it express had it been the intention of Parliament under these provisions, given that it would mean a significantly broadening of the Bankruptcy and Solvency Act. Do you accept that uh, fines imposed by administrative tribunals, AMPs, would be by provincial administrative tribunals, uh, or uh, would be proper considerations under 172 and 173? So that there was a large swath of AMPs uh, that would be a proper basis to refuse a discharge? Yes. Absolutely, and that's what we see in this, the case here with uh, Punian is that the, appe uh, the appellants had applied for their discharge from bankruptcy before a bankruptcy registrar. It was opposed by the British Columbia Securities Commission, but also another creditor, which was the Canada Revenue Agency, uh, had the Department of Justice opposed the discharge. The discharge was refused by the court. Uh, so arguably, the, uh, the court has the discretion to take into account those circumstances uh, as to when and how to deal with those administrative fines. Now, it, as a hypothetical, a registrar in bankruptcy may decide it's more persuasive if the, uh, the debtor had attempted to make some payments towards the administrative penalty rather than none. But again, these are all factors that the court can take into consideration at the discharge, and when dealing with Section 178, the court will have no discretion. Does that, excuse me, does that discretion uh, on discharge 
include setting the terms and conditions and revising the amount that's owed as a debt or liability? No, it, it doesn't. So at that point, uh, the amounts, uh, so the court doesn't have the discretion at a discharge hearing to reduce any of the amounts, but what the court can do is that it's a single proceeding model. So everything would go through a licensed insolvency trustee. And so the court could impose a conditional discharge in favor of a trustee for a certain dollar figure, and then the trustee would collect those amounts and distribute them in accordance with uh, both the priority of the debts, but also uh, peri passu for the remaining creditors. So, uh, but in terms of, of reducing the amounts, the, the, a, a registrar on a discharge hearing or even a judge on a discharge hearing doesn't have the discretion to uh, reduce or, or write down any of the amounts. So with respect to 178 sub 1 sub A, uh, we've made our submissions with respect uh, to what we say the interpretation should be. Before I move on from this section, it, uh, is there anything else that the court would like me to address with respect to, to sub A? All right, so I will then move on to, uh, and so again, our position on sub A is that uh, the court below correctly interpreted this and we're simply seeking to uphold the, the decision of of uh, the BC Court of Appeal, but also we would agree with the uh, Alberta Court of Appeal in heading on this point as well. There's no dispute on the appellants here, and we say that it was uh, properly decided and that this court not, ought not to widen this provision any further. Uh, is different a little bit than the British uh, Court of British Columbia Court of Appeal because they say in Alberta that it is limited to criminal or quasi-criminal nature. Yes. Are, so both courts of appeal agree about imposed by your court. Yes. But they don't agree about does it go further than criminal and quasi-criminal. BC says it can go further, and you concede that, and the Alberta Court of Appeal says no. Uh, correct, and, and I, I would say it. it it can go further, but it will never overcome the hurdle imposed of being imposed by a court. By a court. Okay. And that's the, the anchoring provision because the provision has to be taken in its entire context. And what we say is imposed by a court is important. And that's what anchors this to, okay. uh, to ensure that it respects the division of both the civil and the criminal powers when interpreting a sub A. Now, in terms of our arguments dealing with uh, sub E, we say that the uh, British Columbia Court of Appeal erred on the basis that um, it held that a direct representation to a creditor was not necessary. And then alternatively, uh, that due to the disgorgement order, 
uh, that the respondent fell under sub E regardless by acting as an intermediary or an agent for the purposes of setting up a compensation scheme under section 115.1 of the, of the Securities Act. And so part of our submission, uh, again, uh, I, would, I would just lay down a little marker here that I would be appreciative if at some juncture in your submissions with respect to E, you would address, I'm not saying I have to do it now, is there a difference between the penalties and the disgorgement orders? Yes, I'll make a note of that, and that will come further in my submissions. So, and I guess just add to that whether the false pretenses need to be directed um, directly to the um, commission. Yes, and that is a, a good segue into my, my immediate next point, which is that uh, our first argument is that the, that the interpretation erred in that a representation needs to be directly made uh, to the creditor seeking to avail themselves of Section of sub E. So is there a difference between, because sub E speaks to both false pretenses or fraudulent misrepresentations. Our court has dealt with what the requirements are for fraudulent, uh, for fraudulent misrepresentations. But is there a distinction if when, as here, they're relying on false pretenses? It's our, our position that no, there is uh, no distinction. That uh, effectively the, the test for a fraudulent pretense is uh, collapses into fraudulent misrepresentation. Fraud, fraudulent, uh, sorry. Why did it add false pretenses or? Uh, that is a, uh, so with respect to, uh, to the distinction between the two, and I think that this is um, set out in the with respect to the history of the Bankruptcy Insolvency Act as well. And this is, uh, was helpfully uh, set out in, the, um, in one of the intervener's factums, the Osgood Investor Protection Clinic, is that the Bankruptcy Insolvency Act has a long history. And that there's a number of these provisions that are carried over by a number of years. The, the BIA itself, the history, um, started as uh, British legislation. It was eventually repealed, and we were without insolvency legislation for approximately 40 years, from about 1880 to 1920 or so, approximately. I'd like, I'd like to know if I can ask a question how the uh, market manipulation fits in the um, false pretense. And it's our submission that the market manipulation, it's, it's a complicated answer in that it, it fits not particularly well. It's our position that to the extent that there's private actions for the individual creditors, that they would then be able to assert a private claim and those would fall into the, uh, could potentially fall, and I say potentially fall into the nature of debts that survive bankruptcy. And we say that because with respect to private claims, not all creditors will assert fraud initially. They may decide to more narrowly assert a private claim for breach of contract or negligence. And those may not have the effect of falling in section 178 uh, sub 1 sub E. And then uh, when dealing with market manipulation, uh, it, 
it would be up uh, to a, a judge uh, typically to decide after there's been adjudication of liability of whether or not that that liability then falls squarely into a debt that's not releasable. So when we're uh, yes, the difficulty I'm having is like, private actions by the individuals when the market's been manipulated is so impractical. I mean that's why we have securities commissions with these kinds of powers. It seems like a very unsatisfactory answer to me. Uh, well, and I think that this is one area where we say that there's uh, that um, that could have gone into our A argument, and I apologize, which is that uh, the, the commission had a number of tools in their toolkit to deal with enforcement. They have, on the one hand, financial sanctions. They have market sanctions, which are prohibitions on the, the market. So uh, that, that's not dealt with through bankruptcy. But the, the fork in the road, and this was dealt with squarely with Henning, is that a securities regulator has a few routes to pursue. One of those is the administrative route. The other is the criminal. The commission decided to go with the administrative route here and proceed with their, uh, their action rather than uh, refer the matter for a criminal prosecution. Had the commission- Except that, I mean, uh, the breach of section 57 in the Securities Act is labeled to be an offense. And we have the BC Securities Commission um, concluding that uh, your clients knew or reasonably should have known that the conduct resulted in or contributed to a misleading appearance of trading activity that there was manipulation of the, the, um, uh, the activity in terms of sales and uh, the creation of artificial prices. Why doesn't that qualify as a false pretense? Um, so I will concede on, uh, concede with respect to the point of whether or not there's a false pretense that there were findings by the court at first instance that they recognized the commission's um, the Commission's findings. So uh, that was decided. We're not arguing whether or not there's n not a, 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 a false pretense here. One, uh, the, what we're arguing and what our position is uh, for the purposes of the appeal is whether or not there is a requirement for a direct representation. And then what we say is that uh, also whether or not a, the Commission, uh, if that's sufficient for the Commission to step in. So I think it, with respect to that particular point, there's, there's a lengthy history here. And I want to be clear that our argument isn't that, isn't to revisit or relitigate the appellant's conduct. But it is important to know that with respect to uh, the notion of a representation, and give, it goes back to the, the interpretation of the Bankruptcy Insolvency Act, which is that it, it's our position that the, the exception should be construed narrowly. And in the circumstances, we say that a, a party seeking to avail itself, the representation has to be made directly to them, even if it's a market manipulation. And Mr. Reed, well, but if, if there is a, uh, if there is a uh, uh, misrepresentation at the core, uh, perhaps uh, that argument uh, makes some sense and finds some support in our current jurisprudence. But my, my question is the difference, I guess, between the false 
pretenses and the fraudulent misrepresentation. Even if we take your proposed narrow view of it has to meet dairy and peak criteria, it has to be directly uh, to, to, to the victimized individual, uh, what, what scope is there for false pretenses then? Yes. Um, yes, and so with respect to false pretenses, uh, false pretenses would function uh, very narrowly along those lines uh, where if there was a false pretense, it would have to be made in the context uh, of, of the pretense being made to that party. One of the, the, the concerns that happens when it's a regulator seeking to avail themselves of this section is that the, the pretense has happened many years earlier. There is not often a circumstance where a representation or a pretense will be made directly to a regulator, unless the regulator itself is a victim of a, a fraud or pretense uh, as well. So I think that might be one way to potentially look at reconciling the two, which is that uh, it, there needs to be a, I suppose, a con uh, more of a contemporaneous link. And the second is, is that when we're looking to uh, a, a pretense as well is that is that there's going to be an examination of of the, the circumstances leading leading up I, I don't actually have a, a satisfactory explanation I did grapple with this as well when I was attempting to uh, prepare our our factum I mean, and, if you're and, trying to carry out a scam I think standard operating procedure is staying away from the regulator, not talking to them. No, it, certainly. And, and that was one of the problems that had occurred with Henning in the court below, is that the, Henning in the Court of Appeal had found that Mr. Henning, even though he had made misrepresentations to the regulator during the course of an investigation, that wasn't sufficient to link the conduct of the two. I, I would. Isn't detrimental reliance one of the factors that would differentiate false pretenses and uh, false uh, uh, fraudulent misrepresentation? The actual detrimental reliance, there can be falsity or dishonesty without uh, detrimental reliance. And there's a policy decision that uh, falsity alone would be sufficient without detrimental reliance. Uh, yes, and I think that's, that's fair to say. And, and also, I, I had, when I was looking at this particular provision as, as well and preparing my submissions, the, one of the concerns is, is that uh, pragmatically, when you're looking at this, uh, this provision and whether or not to accept that a, a pretense uh, should be a, more broadened in the circumstances and that if a direct link isn't required, that it could have the effect of sweeping uh, additional uh, parties into a situation where uh, their debts could, that could survive. Uh, I had, as a hypothetical, it could be where a third party or, or joint, like a, a, a personal guarantee situation where one party could make a misrepresentation to say a lender or, or the bank and there's a innocent guarantor that there may be a pretense that is created. And of course, then there's a whole question of willful blindness and so forth, but, but it could be that if there's a broadening of this provision, even in um, somebody who's innocent, um, as, as long as there's a, 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 either a fraudulent pretense or a fraudulent misrepresentation somewhere, if it's too broad, it ends up in a situation where a, an innocent debtor 
who could be a, a jointly liable for the debts could then find that they would have a debt that survives bankruptcy as a result of of the fact that they're um, they're of the connection. So I think that's one thing that this court should be cautious with in looking to broaden the circumstances is that there could be uh, there can be situations where uh, especially in everyday debtor creditor law where situations happen with business people is that there there could be unexpectedly debts that are then uh, swept in and that the provision has to be uh, more narrowly tailored in order to ensure that these debts uh, don't survive. And again, it goes back to my earlier argument that... Um, but isn't it sufficiently narrow that what's required is false pretenses or fraudulent misrepresentation? Don't the internal categories narrow it to a very specific type of conduct that uh, um, uh, garners a high opprobrium? Uh, I would say uh, yes that it does require a a fairly high uh, standard uh, the at the end of the day it's our position that uh, that in order to for there to be a to bring it under the purposes of the bankruptcy insolvency act for the purposes of a debt that survives it must be in, construed narrowly and that does mean at the end of the day that there needs to be some sort of uh, either detrimental reliance or some sort of misrepresentation made directly to the party seeking to avail itself. And, and we say that, um, uh, that respectfully, that the, uh, the respondent, a regulator, doesn't meet that criteria. But, but on this particular point, um, that's not reading it narrowly. Isn't that reading out the words false pretenses? Because that, you're saying that false pretenses means fraudulent misrepresentation. That's not what the section says. No, and this is something that the courts do struggle with in, in how to define a fraudulent pretense. In the court below, uh, the court first instance, uh, the court looked at the appellant's behaviors and said that it could also have been prosecuted under uh, the criminal code definition of fraudulent pretense, uh, which is a, and to be clear, there was never a criminal proceeding. And it's problematic because the court at the very first instance. Um, Just for the matter of clarity, it's false pretense or fraudulent misrepresentation. You, you've used the word fraudulent pretense, so I'm not quite sure which one you're talking about. It, uh, apologies. Um, so with respect to a false pretense, it, it's our submission that uh, the that when we're looking at uh, this particular provision, that that effectively the the test for the two tend to uh, collapse with the case law. We, it, it collapses as well into the tort of deceit. Uh, the courts below have also looked, and the case law have looked to the criminal code. But even if I, even if we were not to be with you on the fact that they merge and they're the same thing, um, you still have to address the issue. Uh, um, resulting from, and I see your time is running low, so yes. I would ask you to do that, please. Yes. From, should we make a distinction between administrative penalties 
and disgorgement orders. Mm. Yes, yeah, certainly. So our position with respect to to uh, resulting from is that, uh, so our position on this appeal, firstly, is that uh, under E, that the respondent's uh, financial sanctions don't meet the criteria. Our alternative position is that if this court were to find that the, the penalties that uh, resulting from was broadly enough to include the, uh, the financial sanctions that we say that it only ought to be the disgorgement provisions uh, or the restitution type orders that would uh, survive in those circumstances. Uh, the reason. Uh, correct. For the disgorgement orders. For the disgorgement. So if this court were to find that, yes, the financial uh, sanctions of the respondent do fall within this provision, uh, and that we're unable to persuade this court that. Uh, that uh, then a narrow reading, or this court uh, decides that the uh, the respondent's uh, financial sanctions fall within this section, we would then submit that, that that should be further interpreted with respect to the disgorgement provisions. And so, when we're looking at uh, the the wording of, I'm sorry, sorry. I'm just struggling with this section, and so I'm hoping you can help me. Yes. Um, with your alternative argument, um, it uh, uh, resulting from this conduct would cover disgorgement and not the penalties because of your view that false pretenses and fraudulent misrepresentations are merged and you need to have that direct link with a... A, a, a misrepresentation to the commission. Otherwise, resulting from would cover both. Is that yes. fair? Yes, because it, the, the disgorgement and the restitutionary type remedies, maybe I'll start with the, the back one front, which is that it, it deals with what the commission found were the losses, as opposed to the administrative fines that they're then imposed later on. So in this particular case, there are, um, the disgorgement remedies, I expect my friends, uh, the respondent will take this court through those, the Securities Act provisions in more detail. But it would be our submission that it would, that the losses that are, are contemplating resulting from should then be uh, looked at with respect to the actual losses suffered as opposed to potentially millions of dollars of administrative fines that could be imposed. On this point, isn't the, does, isn't the court's decision in Deloitte of reasons of the Chief Justice and Justice Cote in paragraph 25, doesn't it really speak to the issue in setting out the conditions for uh, both the CCAA and 178-1E? And the resulting yeah. from is the false representation was made to obtain a property of service. That is the nexus, right? And it's on both the earlier point that you just addressed and this point. Yes, absolutely. And I apologize because my, I, I've, I've moved around my submissions a little bit more than I would have liked, is that that is entirely accurate, which is that uh, the court, uh, this court went on to say that a narrow interpretation is required at the same time of that provision in order to give effect. And it's our submission that this can only be accomplished by, by a narrow provision. So our, our initial, with, with, I'm attempting to avoid um, 
repeating myself, but let me just index myself here just one moment. Uh, yes, and so going back to my just me, uh, the beginning of my submissions, I'll try to address everything in, in time, is that this court in Montreal City and Deloitte did articulate the test uh, for then uh, section 19 sub 2 sub D of the CCAA, which the court did find was functionally identical to section 178 sub 1 sub E. And this court went on to state that to the court held in order to have a claim provable that relates to a debt it must quote result from obtaining property or services by false pretenses or fraudulent misrepresentation a court must establish on a balance of probabilities the following four elements a, a debtor made a representation to the creditor the representation was false the debtor knew the representation was false and the false representation was made to obtain property or service and the court went on to say that this exception to the general scheme established to the CCAA must be interpreted narrowly. I, it would be our position today that, that this statement is depositive of the, uh, the appeal. If the is positive of the appeal, and I will be, I will not deny, I would not deny that this is the law because we wrote it. Yes. Uh, so as far as disgorgement orders are concerned, uh, do you concede that the debtor made a representation to the creditor? Uh, no, we wouldn't, we wouldn't concede, concede that. not with respect to the commission. Because uh, it is the commission who is collecting, uh, which is collecting the money for the victims? Certainly, and the, uh, it goes to my earlier point, which is that it, for the individual investors, even though there was findings by the commission, that <coughs> for individual investors, while it may be impractical, there, there are other remedies, such as class actions, that could have been pursued, that then a court could have properly determined the scope of the liability, whether it was, in fact, a fraudulent misrepresentation for the purposes of the Bankruptcy Insolvency Act, or something lesser, like breach but of contract. But what do we do with the process in the BC Securities Act? Because in the BC Securities Act, uh, the Commission has a role to play when they collect money for the victims. The victims may file claims. Yes, and that is one of my other areas that I wish to touch on, expressly dealing with the disgorgement provisions with respect to the time that I have left, which is that the, the compensation scheme set up by the Securities Commission uh, we would submit is not broad enough to bring this, the Commission under that provision. And, and the, the reason is, is that it goes to one of the other underlying principles of the BIA the effective and efficient distribution of a debtor's assets. The, unlike a private proceedings, investors don't have the ability to opt in or opt out. I suppose they could opt out by not filing a claim. If the commission recovers funds, they set up a compensation scheme. There's a claims bar date. And then if, if investors don't submit a proof of claim in a period of time, then the commission may retain those funds for themselves. And this was uh, identified by Justice Wilkinson that he held that it should exempt, uh, that this section should exempt debts collected by an intermediary on behalf of such victims, as in this case, the commission, whose losses resulted in the disgorgement orders. And the court went on to say, in my view, the act constitutes the commission as a body who can act for limited purposes on behalf of the victim. 
the, the challenge with that statement is that the, that is already the role of the trustee. The role of the, the licensed insolvency trustee is to realize and recover as much of the insolvent debtor's assets as possible to then provide those peri passu to the creditors, which may include investors. Is it not possible to have two alternative schemes, one established under provincial jurisdiction, one established under federal jurisdiction, that have a common purpose? Uh, it, it may be possible, but it does run, run contrary to this court's own um, reasoning in Shire and Shire for a single, uh, a single proceeding model. The reason being is that the uh, bankruptcy process itself brings a sense of calm that everything, there's a stay of proceedings imposed and that it's only a, the trustee recover, seeking to recover assets. If there were to be a dual process with the commission on the one hand with debts that survive a discharge and seeking to recover on behalf of investors uh, provincially and then a federal uh, the federal regime of the Bankruptcy Insolvency Act with a, a trustee seeking to then recover monies on behalf of unsecured and other creditors, it, it would cause difficulty for those two models to then function. Maybe so in some circumstances, maybe not in others, because your clients, for example, might owe two months' rent to their landlord. That might be the only other debt they have, other than the fact you know, that they've got these whopping big penalties and, and, and the disgorgement orders. So in which case it doesn't really arise as a practical consideration. And the avenue provided by the provincial legislation is efficacious. And, 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 and I just question why we should sort of kneecap it. Uh, yes, certainly. Uh, so, so our position with that is, is that it goes to the effective and efficient distribution that, that it's better sued by a, a licensed insolvency trustee. They have the, the, the tools and mechanisms built out in the Bankruptcy Insolvency Act and that it also could uh, pit both the uh, commission against a trustee in terms of who has recovery over which assets. If there is a house at issue with equity, how is that treated if the commission has a a, a disgorgement type order or remedy, and then a trustee is seeking to recover that. Say the say it's tax debt, and there's a hundred thousand dollars of tax debt, and there's a hundred thousand dollar disgorgement order. Who should have priority over the two, and how should the recovery of that be divvied up? The, with respect to the bankruptcy, it's very clear that there's a very efficient distribution model, peri passu, on the basis of security. With, with respect to the commission it's less clear on how that would work. Perhaps they would argue that there's some sort of trust argument, but I'm devolving a little too much into hypotheticals here. It would be our position that a trustee is in a superior position to, to collect and realize on those assets and deal with the investor claims as a whole. Yeah, but there is, uh, is it not a possibility in the Bankruptcy Act 69.4 for the regulatory body, the commission, to ask the bankruptcy court to uh, deal with that about uh, distribution of the disgorgement orders money. Yeah, the, either uh, or participate by filing, um, a dish, uh, participating in the bankruptcy process with the trustee. They, there may be other remedies available as well, and also they can use the bankruptcy process to further investigate the bankrupt's affairs as well. So, the. The concern is, I realize that I'm out of time, I'll just finish. Yes, the concern is, is that the, 
the commission may take the position that they kind of going outside the subject matter, but they may file what's called a reclamation of property claim with the trustee and say that there are certain funds that are actually held in trust for the benefit of certain investors. And then the trustee can adjudicate that. But with respect to, to our submissions here, uh, we would submit that, the, that, the, that at the end of the day, the interpretation is of this particular section requires uh, the, uh, uh, several hurdles, and if this court does find that the the uh, the purpose is uh, best served, uh, that the proper interpretation does include that the commission's liabilities survive the financial sanctions, and then dealing with the uh, the disgorgement remedies, that those disgorgement uh, that those financial sanctions should be then limited to the disgorgement type remedies because they represent the pecuniary losses. Thank you very much. Thank you. Zoe Oksal. Chief Justice, Justices. The Superintendent of Bankruptcy's interest in this appeal is in maintaining the integrity of the insolvency system in keeping with her statutory mandate. To that end, I have two main points to address. The first point, um, which I think um, has been well understood by the court, so I won't dwell on it, but it's that Parliament's intent is that dishonest debtors be dealt with mainly through the Act's discharge scheme in Section 172, rather than through the narrow exceptions in Section 178. My second point, and I'll focus on this, is the impacts on the integrity of the insolvency system that would arise from an overly broad interpretation of Section 178. First, though, I would like to go back and address a question asked by Justice Martin um, of the appellant concerning whether the bankruptcy court has the discretion to revise the amount owed at a discharge hearing. I would point out that a conditional discharge could have that effect. The bankruptcy court could grant a discharge on condition that some percentage of the outstanding debts be paid. And in that case, after the, after the satisfaction of that percentage of outstanding debts, the discharge would be granted and the remainder of the unpaid debts would be released. So that is within the discretion of the bankruptcy court um, in a discharge hearing. Um, given that the court uh, appears to well understand the argument about interpreting 178 in the full context with uh, section 172 and 173, I'll turn to my arguments about the impacts on the integrity of the system from an overly broad uh, interpretation of 178. It's very important that this court consider the potential broader system impacts beyond the specific facts of this case. Because AMPs can arise in many different scenarios and they can involve conduct of varying degrees of severity. An overly broad interpretation of 178 would allow many different types of AMP to survive discharge. That would deprive otherwise deserving debtors of the financial fresh start and it would effectively defeat the purpose of Section 172. Turning to Section 178 1E, AMPs, administrative monetary penalties, are not debts resulting from 
obtaining property under fraudulent misrepresentation. As already has been as ho- has already been discussed, this court in City of Montreal and Deloitte found the exact same language in the CCAA requires a direct link. As noted in Hennig, a creditor should fall within E only if they've been directly victimized by the fraudulent behavior of the debtor. The AMP does not represent the property that was obtained by fraud. Neither does it represent the claims of the persons who've been defrauded. With respect to the disgorgement order, and I I know that the court is interested in whether a distinction should be made between the AMP penalties and disgorgement order. A disgorgement may at least correspond to the property obtained by fraud, but we need to pay particular attention to the statutory disgorgement provision. Where payment to the victim is a matter of tribunal discretion, Section 178.1e does not apply. With respect to... And I'm, I'm one sorry seven... to interrupt you. On what basis are you saying that when the payment is subject to the discretion of the administrative tribunal, uh, Section 178.1e does not apply? Um, if we look at the um, BC Securities Act, in this case, in Section 15.1, it's in our condensed book, Uh, We'll see there that there's a discretion um, for the Commission in terms of the payment of amounts to victims. And we'll also see that the Act Act anticipates that the amount of the disgorgement won't be fully paid out to victims, that there could be a remainder amount that then the um, Commission can use for other purposes. This demonstrates that the disgorgement order amount, which the Commission determines writ large, not with respect to victim by victim, um, can comprise an amount that doesn't necessarily correspond exactly to the property obtained by fraud from the victims and doesn't, in the paying out of it, uh, doesn't necessarily all go to victims. It seems to be broader than uh, simply the Commission acting as a proxy or an intermediary. Well, it seems to me that what that's intended to do is if you have a problem finding the people who've been uh, adversely affected, who've been basically cheated, the money has to go somewhere. But the purpose of the scheme is to put that, the, the money in as much as you can, you can lay your hands on in, in, in back into the hands of the people who were defrauded. I mean, it doesn't, it, this isn't sort of like a bounty hunting thing for the commission, it seems to me. And 15.1 doesn't give a discretion to refuse a proper claim. It simply provides for a claims process. So if it's otherwise a proper claim, it seems to me there would be an obligation to pay a claim. And one last question <laughs> by Justice Kirkatsanis. Yes, I wanted you to address the issue of false pretenses. Your submissions relate to fraudulent misrepresentation, and I am struggling to understand why there's a separate reference in E to false pretenses and whether that has a life of its own. Yes, um, Justice Karakistanis, I'll address that and then I'll attempt to go back to the the other questions. Um, So, I don't have an answer as to how in the legislative history of this it came that we have both false pretenses and fraudulent misrepresentation. But I would say that um, 
there isn't a great, there isn't a huge amount to be drawn from that because for both of them, E is concerned with debt resulting from obtaining property by the false pretenses or fraudulent misrepresentations. So you have the the link there to the the false statements. Um, it's not just the making of the false statement. It has to connect to um, property obtained through that conduct. And in our submission, um, it has to be the, the, uh, the creditor, uh, the victim of that behavior that is advancing the claim. Um, so uh, in my submission, the, the, this issue as between false pretenses being potentially narrower than fraudulent misrepresentation ends up not um, affecting the interpretation here because on either you, you require that the, there is property obtained through that behavior. Um, with respect to the questions about the um, commission's uh, scheme, uh, one thing we noted in the outline of our condensed book is that um, in an earlier decision in this case, the, the BC Court of Appeal, in fact, talked about how the, dis the disgorgement um, orders are not compens compensatory or restitutionary. Um, they can have that effect um, to a certain extent, perhaps fully that effect, depending on the circumstances. But if you just look at the statutory provisions alone, the commission is not um, acting as a uh, proxy or a mere intermediary. All right, thank you very much. The court will take its uh, morning break, 15 minutes. Thank you. Please be seated, <coughs> Mr. Roberts. Chief Justice, Justices, if I can give you a quick overview of where we hope to take you. Um, I'm going to quickly review very few, but a couple of the facts that I will keep coming back to, and so I want to emphasize them a couple times. Then I'm going to talk about statutory interpretation and how we say the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act and the Securities Act should be interpreted in these circumstances. Included in that, I'm going to talk about the nature of the financial sanctions imposed by the Securities Commission. Then I'm going to turn to Section 178.1e talk about that directly, and then I'm going to sit down and my colleague, Ms. Bevan, will address 178.1a and closing. So you have our central thesis. These provisions of the BIA were intended to assist honest but unfortunate debtors, and these appellants are neither. Parliament clearly did not intend that the BIA would provide absolution for all debts and liabilities. And we say that the amounts owing to the Securities Commission, properly interpreted, 
fall within 178 1A and E and should survive. I won't belabor the facts, but a couple of things I want to come back to. You have the details of the market manipulation. It was a well-planned and well-orchestrated deceit. It comes in three phases. The first phase is the share acquisition and control, where a control and block of shares are acquired by the appellants using pseudonyms, and I think it was 17 intermediaries. Second phase is the price increase. They artificially increase the price by wash trades and control trades between nominees. And the third phase is the liquidation, where the shares are sold and liquidated and the profit taken. In a more traditional scheme, the liquidation phase would involve shares being sold into the marketplace, effectively to the world. Here it's different, it's unique. There was a groomed and targeted victim pool. They specifically chose and convinced this group of people to buy these shares. And that brings up two points. First is, this is a particularly vulnerable group of people. They were already in credit counseling. They already were of low financial means, struggling to get by, and are doubly victim, both by the Phoenix Group, which was the credit counseling agency, and by these appellants. Second, and goes to a question that was just asked, uh, these appellants intentionally shielded their identity and kept themselves distanced from their victims, which goes back, and I'll come back to it, but goes back to the uh, fraudulent misrepresentation, false pretenses issue about where, Justice Rowe, you had asked about does it make a difference where they had shielded themselves. And here, these appellants clearly tried to make a separation between themselves and the victim pool. Uh, there's not a lot of evidence about direct misrepresentations being made to these victims. But we would say that in no way lessens the deceit and no way lessens the impact on these victims, nor should it lessen whether the claims of the victims would fall into 178.1e. I'll come back to that a couple of times. But, but we say there should be no reasonable argument that the victim's claims directly against these appellants would fall into 178.1e possibly D as well, but we're only talking about E. So that those claims by those victims, the people directly defrauded, would survive bankruptcy and could be brought in. And that matters for a couple of reasons. But one is, throughout all of these factums, you've seen talk of the financial fresh start, that one of the pillars of the Bankruptcy Act is that an individual bankrupt is entitled to a financial fresh start. In this case, we say that is absolutely a red herring. These appellants will not get a fresh start. They still owe, the numbers are 1.3 million and 3.9, I think, the amounts that the Commission had found they received from their victims. These appellants will owe that money to these victims, regardless of how this appeal goes. And so any discussion about how uh, um, the submissions being made by the Securities Commission will undercut one of the principles of the Bankruptcy Act by undercutting a financial fresh start, we say is a red herring, because those claims are going to survive. We say with the real issue, is whether the claims by those victims can be effectively and indirectly brought by the Commission, particularly in relation to the disgorgement orders, where we can go and collect money and then run a claims process to return money to victims. Or if the Commission's claims don't survive, effectively what happens is each of those victims is told, you must do it yourself. You must do it yourself. You must, you must figure out Mm -hmm. You'll recall reading in it, Tim Jensen was the pseudonym used. You're going to have to figure out who Tim Jensen was. Hint, it was Mr. Punian. You're going to have to find out who the various secondary participants were so that you can get back to the actual defendants. You're going to have to fund the lawyer. You're going to have to prosecute the claim. You're going to have to get a judgment, and you're going to have to enforce on it. And going to the end of where my submissions go, we say consistent both with 
a proper interpretation of 178 of the Bankruptcy Act as a whole and the Securities Act leads to the conclusion that 178-1E should be interpreted to allow the Commission to do that. Mr. Roberts, could you help me with something? Uh, and it's, it arises really of the way this was segmented, or the way it's presented to us as a segmented, the discharge first that went up Good. to the Court of Appeal and then the, the, uh, the 178 declaration. Good. Really what's happening here is going to be academic, uh, in a sense, because there has to be a prior lifting of the uh, 172. So uh, isn't, isn't that the, the, the case, that really... Good. Uh, can I, if I can take it back yeah, one sure. step. So, first of all, 172 discharges only apply to individuals. Companies can't be discharged from bankruptcy, so we're only talking about personal bankruptcies. A bankruptcy, the individual makes an assignment in bankruptcy on day one, at some day in the future they're discharged. In the middle bit, they're an undischarged bankrupt. On the day of their discharge, subject because of 178 sub 2, all of their debts, except the 178, one debts, are discharged. In order to get an order of discharge, one of two things have to happen. Either there's an automatic discharge, you heard my friend talk about that, in what's called a summary administration. There's a nine-month process where you file for bankruptcy, nine months later you're automatically discharged. Or if a creditor or the OSB or the trustee oppose the discharge, there will then be a court hearing. So first of all, let's narrow down. When we're talking about a 172 hearing, it's only in those circumstances where a creditor has been resourceful enough to file an opposition. But once we get to that process, you're right. During the bankruptcy proceeding, while the person is an undischarged bankrupt, there's a stay of proceedings. That stay of proceedings, as you saw from Section 69, applies to the provable claims of the Commission, which are the financial claims. So the Commission can't do anything. The Commission is a passenger on the bankruptcy train. Goes through only after a discharge. After a discharge order is granted and the bankrupts are discharged, do the 178 claims become relevant? So if your question was, is this irrelevant because these people will never be discharged, if we could forecast the future and say they're never going to be discharged, you'd be absolutely right. We don't know that. Most of the time, and I, I hesitate because these appellants perpetrated a rather egregious fraud, most bankrupts get discharged. The point of a bankruptcy process is for the bankrupt to be discharged at the end. And then the only things that will survive are the 178 claims. So I would push back just a little bit when you said it's irrelevant. Most of the time it's not irrelevant because there will be a discharge at some point and then the people with the 178 claims will be relevant again. Hopefully that answers your question. Also, there was a comment about how uh, the Commission's proceeding might interfere with that process. And I say that's illusory because during the bankruptcy process, the Commission's a passenger. They're not actively enforcing, there's a stay of proceedings. They're not doing anything other than participating in the bankruptcy. Somebody had asked, couldn't they ask for the stay to be lifted? They could, but they're a public interest regulator. If the trustee is doing their job and collecting money for the benefit of creditors, which would include the victims, the, the public interest regulator isn't going to come and interfere with that. They're not going to come and run a competing claims process that somehow interferes with victims having their monies returned. About the process of 689.4. Correct. Because they're, if, if they apply to lift the stay. So this, that stay of proceedings applies to regulatory bodies for provable claims, and provable claims are the financial sanctions. So the, the Securities Commission is stayed. They can't enforce their claims 
during that bankruptcy process because the state proceedings prevents them from doing so. And I, I add this, and they're happy to not be prosecuting their claim because the trustee hopefully is doing their job and recovering money for investors. I'm going to go back to attention in statutory interpretation. Um, repeatedly by this court and other courts, everyone talks about the narrow interpretation of 178. I mean, don't quibble with that at all. This court said it recently. Obviously, that's the case. But where the tension is, is this court also says that acts are read in their entire context, in their grammatical and ordinary sense, harmoniously with the scheme of the act, the object of the act, and the intention of parliament. The overriding principle of statutory interpretation is the purposive, I've been practicing that word all week, purposive, the purposive interpretation. And, and the tension, I say, is between a rule of interpretation contrasted with the analysis of what parliament intended. And, and where we say the Alberta Court of Appeal went wrong in Hennig was they put the narrow interpretation ahead of the actual goal, which is what did Parliament intend? And what we say is, thank you. Well, all I was going to say is that even though this terminology is not frequently used, it's something I bear in mind that there's, I make a distinction between the construction of a statute, which is to comprehend the statutory scheme and then the interpretation of a provision which you then situate within Good. that statutory scheme. Good. And if I can push that just a little bit, I would add to it is when the court is interpreting, narrowly or broadly, depending on the circumstance, the horse dragging that cart should be the purpose of interpretation. I'll put it another way. If a narrow interpretation undercuts the intent of the act, that interpretation shouldn't be accepted. The interpretation should be consistent with the object of the act. And so, um, you saw in the court below a reasonably lengthy discussion in my condensed book at tab 9 is the BC Court of Appeals decision. I'm at page 96 in the middle top, which is paragraph 73 of the decision. And for the next few paragraphs, the Court of Appeal goes through what they see, and I don't think there's a lot of argument, but what they see as the overriding object of the BIA. And I, I, I want to emphasize these because when we go back to talk about 178, even construed narrowly, I, we submit that even that narrow interpretation has to be consistent with these words, the words that courts have said, this is what this act is about. So at 73, the master rationale for all exceptions described in the jurisprudence is exempting all classes of debt that fall outside the legitimate objective of the bankruptcy regime. And courts have recognized a particular policy objective in the specific provisions before us on the appeal. And I'm just going to take you to the uh, underlying sections, uh, citing Master Fundick. All of the exceptions in the, in the section are based on what might be classed as overriding social policy. Paragraphs D and E are morality concepts which look at conduct. Those kinds of conduct are unacceptable to society and a bankrupt will not be rewarded for such conduct by a release of liability. In the next paragraph in Maloney, 
The classes of debt that are not discharged by bankruptcy are those that Parliament has concluded fall outside the legitimate objectives of the bankruptcy regime. And then at the bottom, citing Korea data systems, these exceptions are designed to ensure that purposeful wrongdoers cannot take unjustified advantage of the bankruptcy regime's protections. But that has to be looked at too in connection, to look at the factors Agreed. listed in section 173. Yes. It says that a judge has discretion not to discharge a, a bankrupt uh, who has been uh, guilty of any fraud. Good. So on a, on, a, on a 172 hearing, a discharge hearing, where the court is considering the 173 factors, as you, you mentioned before, it's a discretionary order. Mm -hmm. And the court decides, based on these factors, am I going to allow, refuse, or impose a conditional discharge on this particular bankrupt? as opposed to the 178 factors, which are binary, mm -hmm. and there's no discretion. We say that the court at a 172 um, hearing should exercise those factors. The 178 issues don't come up until the 172 hearing is done. Nothing to do with it. In the 172 hearing, the court is deciding whether all creditors would benefit from a suspended discharge, refused discharge, etc. And absolutely one of the factors to consider is, I think it's K, fraud. They talk about the bankrupt's fraud. But those are all focused on, all those provisions are focused on the bankrupt's conduct, both inside the bankruptcy. For example, during the bankruptcy, a bankrupt has all of these obligations to file monthly expense reports, to go to counseling, do things, report income. Um, and so that court has discretion about how to deal with it. We say that's a different question than, and we say should, the Securities Commission's monetary sanctions survive under 178. Under 172, if a court decides, there should be, I'm making this up obviously, a two-year suspended discharge. So for two years, the bankrupt will continue to pay monies into the estate, and at the end of that two years, will be free. We say that may be an absolutely appropriate circumstance for all of the bankrupt's other creditors. The, the appellants here, in the materials is their statement of affairs, their only obligations were some consumer debt, some credit card debt, and then CRA in the commission. So it may be entirely appropriate for their discharge to be suspended for a period of time where they could make payments, and it would benefit all of those creditors. But if we just say that's a separate question than should forever these victims be entitled to recover monies. May I ask you this question? Your, your friends opposite say that um, given the scheme and you allege that it's fraudulent, um, you could have gone under the fraud, uh, 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 fraud kind of uh, provisions, but you chose the administrative route. What should we make of that in this hearing? Um, and if, just if I can clarify the question, um, you're referring that we, the commission could have proceeded under 57B, which is the tribunal fraud, or you're talking about a 57 court proceeding? Uh, either. Either, okay. So uh, Section 57 of the Act has two grounds of contraventions. One is B is fraud, A is market manipulation. They chose, because this was a market manipulation, to use the market manipulation provision. Um, uh, the, uh, both in all of the findings in the Commission, and then as found in both courts below, there was a clear finding that that was small f fraudulent behavior. The behavior was sufficiently deceitful to constitute a fraud for the purposes of 178. Separately, 
if the question is, why did the Commission not proceed under either 57 or an offence section to go and prove in a court of law um, um, uh, uh, either quasi-criminal or criminal fraud? And here's the practical answer. The Commission's primary obligation is to regulate the marketplace. In a regulatory proceeding, they have all of the market sanctions, which is they can issue temporary orders at the front end, stop trading, they can issue freeze orders, uh, they can control the ability of individuals to participate in the marketplace. That's in a regulatory proceeding. In a criminal proceeding, they can seek different sanctions uh, and would come up with a different result, a court, if, they, if they're successful, a judgment, essentially for fraud. But it would require two completely separate investigatory streams because you can't have cross-contamination of the Commission in the regulatory proceeding can compel evidence and the criminal obviously cannot. And so the Commission would have to effectively prosecute this same thing two times. Every, every regulatory tribunal, if they were going to do that, would have to have two completely separate investigations and prosecutions. And I think the answer is there are not infinite resources to make that happen. So the answer is yes, could have, but at the front end of this investigation, when they're fulfilling their primary mandate, which is uh, stopping the harm in a regulatory proceeding, they've got to make a decision. So hopefully that answers the question. Mr. Roberts, can yes. I ask you, because so far you've focused on the victims. Yes. And that would be the disgorgement order. Um, uh, the distinction has been made between the disgorgement order and the administrative penalties. Can you address the administrative Good. penalties, please? Uh, so, one, we agree there is a distinction, and the Court of Appeal below certainly thought there was a distinction. Same where um, this court in Deloitte said for misrepresent fraudulent misrepresentation, effectively it's the Darien Peak test. There still may be some um, um, Shaver Cudell, Ontario Court of Appeal, when talking about false pretenses, queries whether there must be a representation made by the debtor to the individual creditor, but we'll leave that aside. In um, the court below, the Court of Appeal found that the Commission, in enforcing the disgorgement orders, I think they called it an intermediary. I might quibble with that wording. I say the Commission is not the agent for the individual investors, but the effect of, running, of collecting money and running a claims process for the investors certainly has the effect of, of recovering monies for investors. Um, we say that the admin penalty, which goes a slightly different route, money's collected, also fits in 178.1e, but on a different ground. So money's collected under section 15 of the Act. 15 and 15.1 deal with how money's collected under either admin penalties and disgorgement orders are dealt with. You heard my friend and, and counsel for the OSB talk about under 15.1, money comes in, it's subject to a claims process. I quibble with the idea that it's discretionary. It clearly says you're going to run a claims process. It's a public interest regulator. They're not going to deny legitimate claims. Uh, they pay the money out to legitimate claimants. Under Section 15, monies that come in under a, an admin penalty are either used for investor education, or I think the wording is for benefit of third parties, which means it could be used for other victims. This is, admin penalties are not taken in and used for general revenue, for example. So slightly different, slightly one step removed from the victim. Discouragement orders obviously are closer to victim recovery. They're one step removed, but we still say we fit into 178.1e for this reason. The act requires that section talks about a causal nexus. This court mentioned it in Deloitte. 
But the causal nexus is a result. It's a one-way street. Did the, the acquisition of property, the many millions of dollars that these appellants acquired, was it the result of this deceitful conduct? And we say it was. Or the, sorry, the, 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 um, both the administrative penalties and the disgorgement orders are the result of this deceitful conduct. Legislature could have used the words directly resulting. They could have used the words, they could have limited to the tort of deceit. They could have limited it in any number of ways. What they didn't, they said any debt or, any debt or obligation, any debt or liability. It has, uh, but uh, resulting from what? Obtaining Re property or services. Yes. False pretenses or but, fraudulent yes. representation, but you need to have been induced Yes. To, 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 to give property or services. And the Commission, I understand that your administrative penalties were not because you were induced to give property or services. As the superintendent described your, your debt or yes. liability in uh, paragraph 20 of their factum, they say they result from the Commission's own collection efforts after registering its judgments with the court, rather than from the Commission having been induced by the appellants into transferring property to them. So you cannot tell us today that the Commission has been induced by the appellants to transfer property to the Commission. Agreed. But where I push back a little is you're using the word induced, but the word is resulting, a causal connection. And so what we say is resulting is a causal issue, cause and effect. The bad conduct resulted in an administrative penalty and a discouragement order, and they obtained property being millions of dollars. And under, we say, under either fraudulent misrepresentation or false pretenses, we would fit. Probably more under false pretenses, because it's a sort of a deceit on the marketplace. And so I would push back just on the use of the limiting word of induced. Do it another way. In the Deloitte case, the Deloitte case wasn't about this issue. The Deloitte case, the Deloitte case wasn't decided about this issue. There were three issues in Deloitte. Uh, one was uh, pre and post filing set off, which obviously has nothing to do with here. Second was the narrow interpretation of the provisions, which I've talked about. And the third was um, this court's comment that the dairy and peak factors, toward deceit factors, um, were needed to prove fraudulent misrepresentation. But, and, and I take no issue with the fact that at the center of fraudulent misrepresentation are false pretenses in the bullseye. The bullseye is dairy and peak. There's no doubt that if those factors are met, it's going to hit in the middle. What the court wasn't called on to do in Deloitte's was talk about the boundaries of either fraudulent misrepresentation or false pretenses because the finding was the city didn't get through the gate. The city hadn't tendered any evidence of fraud, hadn't tried to, instead they relied on either an implicit or a statutory fraud simply because the party had participated in the voluntary repayment program. But the court wasn't called on to talk about where do the boundaries end. Between false pretenses and fraudulent misrepresentation, fraudulent representation, we were talking about a false representation. But what we said, it had to be a claim that relates to a debt resulting from obtaining property or services, and the creditor must establish. Uh, 
uh, and the first element, the debtor made a representation to the creditor in order to obtain from that creditor property or services, which, which is not the position of your commission. Correct. You did not, uh, you were not induced in transferring property. It's a bit of an awkward fit, really. Yes, I mean, is, at the end of the day, uh, it is a bit of an awkward fit. Yes. It would have been, it's used, it uses the word resulting from. If it had said, in respect of, we agree according to canons of interpretation, that would have been the broadest linkage. It could have said, in connection with, Agreed. that would have been broader. Yes. But it uses resulting from, which is narrower. Yes. And the argument you're making is certainly sensible to me. It makes a lot of sense. But we are constrained, and, and I agree that Deloitte isn't to be read like a statute, right? Paragraph 25 isn't right. a... But uh, on the other hand, the superintendent has told us, you know, the, the, the public officer who's got no stake in this, telling us, um, you know, this is going to upend, there are going to be many, many administrative tribunals, hundreds of them across the country, imposing amps, and then we're going to be uh, allowing the executive across the province to basically completely upend the bankruptcy scheme. So Good. that's the tension, that's the heart of this case for us. So if I can address the, 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 the I worry about a slippery slope, that if, if, if you were to find wholly in my favor today, um, what we say is there isn't that worry. All of these provisions already have sufficient limiting provisions in them, because they have to be, the culpability level is really high in both D and E, or when my friend will talk about A, it's not culpability level, but the, the standard to be reached is really high. So if the provincial legislature decides that conduct that reaches this level of culpability will be subject to a monetary sanction, and they impose that in a validly within their jurisdiction in a valid statute, so be it. And I don't mean that facetiously, I mean so be it. Because we're, we're talking about, we're not talking about somebody failed to file their mining tenure report on time. That's not gonna meet any of these. We're not talking about every administrative penalty out there. It's still going to have to have the standard of some administrative tribunal is going to have to make findings of fact that reach this level of culpability. And, and our position is, if they do, then so be it. If the, if the provincial government, within its sphere of jurisdiction, decides that that should equate to a sanction, then so be it. But I, I, think it's, I think the slippery slope is illusory because, knock on wood, there's not that much conduct out there that reaches that level. May I, I ask this question? And it, it's kind of maybe a merits-based question, or, or, but it does get to this floodgates type of argument. In, in this proceeding, um, there was a, a, a deemed profit of about $7 million. And the administrative uh, penalty is $21 million. That's uh, done on the basis of three times uh, the perceived property that was re received by the Punians um, and, and others. And this is, so looking at it, isn't it enough that this is a, a massive fine or penalty um, on, the, um, on the penalty side um, that forces them into bankruptcy? Um, and then you're saying that it should continue to exist uh, for the duration of their lives under 178 as well. And I'm thinking about the other individuals who, who uh, um, were participating. Uh, these are really significant fines. Um, how, do we, how do we deal with that in terms of p 
putting that into the purpose of potential rehabilitation of a, of a bankrupt uh, debtor. Good, thank you. Um, so first, just to do with the quantum and the fines. Uh, the quantum of these penalties went to the Court of Appeal and leave was denied. And so um, you will see in the sanctions decision how the Commission has, has reached the conclusion that these were appropriate fines uh, to levy. It went to the Court of Appeal, leave was denied. And so there was, there was judicial oversight in that. But then we're talking about how, how is anybody going to be rehabilitated in this? And it, two answers to that. One, I want to go back to my, my, the, the red herring issue, which is these appellants should not survive should not have the debts they owe to the victims extinguished. Meaning whether it's 20 million or the um, seven million dollars they defrauded people of, or the disgorgement order for four, those amounts should survive and would survive regardless of what happens here today. But second, both the commission and the court control enforcement process. And it is standard fare in registrar's hearings across this country where debtors go in front of a registrar and say, I owe this person $20 million, I make $750 a week working over here, I can only afford to pay X. And registrars in BC, we call them subpoenas to debtor. Where, and registrars make orders about payment plan. And so there, there are already built-in systems to deal with the practical problem of how do these people pay this back. Also, the commission, public interest regulator, if, if a reasonable proposal, payment proposal, was made by these appellants, the commission is going to look at it. And so those, we say those amounts should survive. Uh, they are significant, but the conduct was egregious. The, 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 uh, the amount of the sanctions were commensurate with the conduct. It doesn't mean the commission won't have discussions with these appellants or any other respondents in these proceedings about how to deal with that. Because uh, this charge was refused under 172. Oh, they can apply again. I know, but uh, to apply again and to be successful in a future application, you know that the threshold is not low. Agreed. It's very, very high. Though I, I agreed, and I don't quibble with that at all, other than if these appellants, I, I'm not sure, you probably have the discharge application hearing in your materials. These appellants effectively refused to participate in the bankruptcy process. They chose bankruptcy, they made voluntary assignments, and then didn't participate. They didn't get a job, they didn't pay, and nobody expects them to pay 20 million, but get a job and pay in a proportionate amount of your income into your estate for your creditors. They paid zero, they refused to work. If they participate in the program that they choose to, they chose to involve themselves in, if they participate in it, and in a year or two years or three years, come back and say, we've done everything we're supposed to do. We've filed our reports, we got a job, we paid in the estate. The registrar hearing that discharge application may very well grant them a discharge. And so I would, I would just push back on the issue of that they'll never get discharged. They, it's absolutely within their power to be discharged. I'm going to very shortly turn the remainder of the time over to, to Ms. Bevan, but I do want to address one piece of 178 that I hadn't gone through, which is, um, and you'll have seen the conflict in the cases between whether it's necessary for the Commission to be what's referred to as a deserving victim. Does the, does the Commission have to be the victim of the fraud in order to advance these claims? You'll see that in, in Hennig, 
the court found that deserving victim was a requirement. The BC Court of Appeals said it's not. They said, and they said it's particularly not when the Commission was acting as an intermediary for victims. And I want to point out in Hennig, and the cases that Hennig cited have a level of moral culpability well below what we're talking about today. Um, in Hennig, they actually found at the end of the day that the Commission, Alberta Securities Commission, hadn't proven a fraud, meaning the gating issue. If you haven't proven a fraud like in Deloitte, you're not going to get into this discussion. And then the two cases it cited as being the primary drivers of including the deserving victim, one was Goldstein, and Goldstein was about a law society proceeding for costs. Again, level of moral culpability. Uh, and the other was Kurtz, where you got a feel for Mr. Kurtz. He leased an air conditioner in his home and sold the home. And the purchaser bought the home, and the allegation was he fraudulently misrepresented to the purchaser that he owned the air conditioning unit. And the vendor of the air conditioning unit wanted to sue him, and uh, the court had said, well, that misrepresentation wasn't made to you, vendor. It was made to the purchaser. And again, I'm just going to say that moral culpability in that sense is, is well down here. Say that the law society was suing for what wanted uh, its cost, yes. but it was cost uh, resulting or following uh, the disbarment of a lawyer for right. fraud. There was a fraudulent conduct in Goldstein. That's right. And, and Justice Morowitz, yes. as it then was, says yes. that it was not a debt or liability. Yes. Uh, and what I, the, the, the point I would make is that's at least one step removed. The fraudulent conduct was over here. Then there was a law society proceeding that resulted in cost. And so it's at least one step removed from where I am today. One of the, one of the things that uh, was urged upon us, of course, picking up on a point I think made by my uh, colleague, Justice Jamal, was that the superintendent of bankruptcy was, was essentially used plain language saying, don't screw up the bankruptcy regime. Yeah. By, by, by interpreting this too broadly, to which I kind of said, well, or I perhaps signaled that that's fine, but we, 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 we shouldn't kind of kneecap yes. the, the BC securities regime either, right? I mean, it, it, we shouldn't kind of, it's, uh, which one do we shoot, right? It's, it's, not, it's not what we're here for, I don't think. It's, it's sort of how to make both of them work together properly. And um, I, I guess that um, um, you, you, you do hear a bit of a concern from the bench that very large penalties, administrative penalties, could get to the point where they do interfere with the proper operation of the uh, bankruptcy scheme and, and the argument is less um, forceful, perhaps, when what we're talking about is um, disgorgement orders, which is, as I've understood it, really a, a practical mechanism for people to recover who probably don't have another practical mechanism. And, and I mean, I guess that, I don't know, maybe, it's, maybe I don't have a question. Maybe it's just a perspective. No, I, 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 I'm, <laughs> I'm going to, I'll echo your perspective. Um, I, I quibble with nothing in there. Uh, and, and I want to go back to your first point about kneecapping, which is um, we're in what former Chief Justice McLaughlin referred to as the regulatory state, where levels of government have created regulatory regimes with a view to governing, regulating various 
spheres of society or economics. Um, one of those, and, and what this court said in Branch, one of the most important ones is the Security Commission because of the importance of the capital markets uh, to our economy. Um, when interpreting the bank, the Bankruptcy Act is a working statute. It runs headlong into regimes all the time because the Bankruptcy Act is a clearinghouse for everything, every debt. Because bankrupts show up to trustees with any number of their consumer debt. There's restitution orders, you name it. But any statute that creates a financial obligation is going to run into the Bankruptcy Act eventually. We say in interpreting the Bankruptcy Act, the court should have a view to how it's supposed to fit into society as a whole. And we live in the regulatory state where the province has enacted legislation and given a mandate to the commission to be the proper body to both regulate the economy and use the two levers it has. It has two levers. One is the imposition of market sanctions to control people participating in those markets, and two, to impose financial sanctions of the two types, penalties and discouragement orders. Those orders are all issued primarily for general and specific deterrence issues. If those penalties, either both or one, are discharged by bankruptcy, if, if immediately upon those penalties being imposed, a person can go make an assignment in bankruptcy and wash themselves of these obligations, the deterrent value of those sanctions is severely undercut. And so when we talk about kneecapping, what I say is when interpreting the BIA, we should be mindful of the regime that exists today, the world we live in today, which is we need securities commissions to be able to do their job and to not give, and we're, we're talking about this level, the, the moral culpability is up here, we're talking about fraudsters, we're not talking about people who fail to file their exempt market reports a day late, we're talking about this level. Uh, we need the commission to be able to regulate those people. And so when interpreting 178 or what false pretenses means, I'll add quickly, oh, I'm gonna have to sit down. Um, <laughs> Quickly on false pretenses, uh, Parliament chose two sets of words, fraudulent misrepresentation and false pretenses. And I think we have to assume they meant these, these were supposed to be different things. They can't have meant they're the same thing because they wouldn't have chosen two terms if they were supposed to be the same thing. And Shaver Crudell, the Ontario Court of Appeal, says we're not quite sure about the extent of false pretenses, but clearly at the core of this is a deceitful statement made to persons resulting in the acquisition of property. And we say we fall right into those and maybe not both justice, but we certainly fall into with discouragement order and we would argue that resulting is broad enough to include the administrative penalty as well. And uh, subject of course to questions. Just, are we just only ever talking about statements for fraud? Mm. Clearly when there's a statement, um, but isn't the essence of market manipulation actions rather Agreed. than statements? Absolutely. Which is, which is where, if I had another two hours, I would, I would go into why I think there's a difference between fraudulent misrepresentation, which is limited to statements. It can be acts or omissions, but really uh, the, the um, uh, false pretenses, we say, is a broader category of things. And then a market manipulation being uh, a, f a deceit, to use a broader word, on the marketplace. It is a way of pretending a thing is black when it is white. And so what we say is false pretenses is much broader and absolutely should catch market manipulation and absolutely should catch 178.1e should catch that conduct. Yeah, but we false pretenses of fraudulent mm -hmm. uh, misrepresentation. You need one thing, you need to obtain property yes. or services. 
whatever the, the source is. Is it because of false pretenses or false representations, but you need to get property? Great. So what it says is the debtor needs to obtain property. That's the, the, yeah. it's that one-way street. Yeah, and the, so, uh, and the person agreed. has to say that the yeah. false pretense or misrepresentation yeah. was... Yeah. I'm not going to win this yeah. with you. Yeah. <laughs> well, what do you, may I just ask, what do you say that is, uh, qualifies there? That uh, the, the word What is the property obtained? The property obtained was the, the, the cash that the millions of dollars they obtained as a result. So the profit that they, they got from their correct. manipulation is Which, the property. Correct. And we say the word resulting is broader than induced, that resulting is that causal relationship. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Chief Justice, Justices, we'll have enough time because the, the um, aspect that I am addressing here today. Section 178, 1A, the analysis and interpretation of that section as it applies to this case uh, very much echoes the comments of my colleague, Mr. Roberts, in terms of what I, what I think, Justice Rowe, you intend in terms of construction of a statute and interpretation of a statute, if I understand you correctly, very much echoes these themes. Section 178, 1A is worded broadly. The purpose of that section is to ensure that a bankrupt cannot avoid financial obligations for an offense against the state. It's a public uh, section that reflects uh, sanctioning for public law issues. It includes criminal sanctions. It includes quasi-criminal sanctions. It includes the sanctions ordered by administrative tribunals where they meet the three criteria that are set out in 178, 1A. Administrative tribunals are the vehicles through which state action uh, is carried out in the administrative state. The Securities Act is a valid delegation of state action and power, and the financial orders that are authorized as part of that delegated state power are exactly the type of public law obligations that Section 178.1a addresses. I'll touch briefly on all three aspects of that section. Uh, for the first and the third, the, the, the fine, penalty, or restitution order, or other orders similar in nature, which we say these these administrative penalties and disgorgement orders ordered by the Securities Commission clearly fall into. It's clearly in respect of an offense. Justice Jamal, you referenced the words in respect of are the, connote the broadest connection and between two concepts. Um, and, and that's the third element. And then I'll, I'll come back, circle back to imposed by a court. Uh, we say the Commission's administrative penalties and disgorgement orders satisfy all three and are not released by any eventual discharge of the appellants from bankruptcy. The first element is the nature of the order, so dealing first with the disgorgement orders. We say they are, under 161.1g, similar in nature to restitution orders. They're a gain-based remedy that are designed to achieve deterrence by ensuring a person does not retain the benefit of their wrongdoing. 
Uh, I won't repeat the submissions that have been made here today about the restitutionary effect, but you find that in the statute. You find that in the, the delegated authority in, in the Securities Act. Similarly, the orders made under Section 162 of the Act are penalties within the meaning of Section 178.1a. The Commission has a statutory mandate to craft appropriate sanctions that protect the public interest and deter conduct that could undermine investor protection and confidence in the public markets. There is not in my submission a basis in Section 178.1a to limit uh, the fines, penalties, or restitution orders only to criminal fines, penalties, or restitution orders. The words used by Parliament are, of course, any fine, penalty, or restitution order, not as the Alberta Court of Appeal in Hennig said would urge punitive penalties only. It would have been an easy thing for Parliament to restrict Section 178.1a to fines, penalties, and restitution orders under the Criminal Code if its intention was to define the administration of justice as limited to criminal matters or penalties intended to punish. It captures something broader than that. It captures the protective, preventative, prospective, regulatory orders that are made under administrative, uh, as administrative penalties under the Securities Act. And I say that's important not only for the first branch of 178-1A, but for the second as well, for the idea that these must be imposed by the court. When you are interpreting the section, once you've construed it properly, in my submission, as a public law section that is intended to ensure that a bankrupt cannot defeat public law sanctions. Then when coming to the second branch the, the, uh, of the test, whether or not it's imposed by the court, it's necessary to look to the, the words used in the Securities Act to determine what does that mean in this context for these orders to serve this purpose. And, and Justice Jamal, your question earlier to my friend for the appellants was, isn't it fair to say that this is, this is where the narrow construction lives? And in my submission, it's only so narrow as these words permit the purpose to be achieved. If the purpose is to ensure that the bankrupt cannot escape the public law sanctions, then one must look to the nature of those sanctions, the interaction between uh, the Securities Act in this case and what the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act requires. So we have to look at text and uh, we examine text in light of purpose. And it, it says imposed by a court, it doesn't say enforceable before a court, right? So, I mean, that would have, you said it would have been an easy thing for Parliament to have used the appropriate language. I guess that applies here too. It would have been very simple to say uh, enforceable before a court, and then we would have no debate. We'd all go, we'd all go home, because it would be uh, clear. But imposed by a court suggests that the imposition is by a court, and it isn't here. It's by the administrative tribunal. Well, in my submission, addressing the first aspect of your question, enforceability is the, the opposite side of the coin of the imposed. It is, it is enforceable because it has been imposed by a court in these circumstances. And it's imposed by a court by operation of Section 163.1, by operation of that section that says, once you file it, it has the same force and effect. And all proceedings may be taken on under the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act, under the Limitation Act in the province, under however, you, however that, that order must be enforced, for all purposes, for all proceedings may be taken on it, and it has the same force. In it. Now, no, please. 
enforce an effect, but it does not render the order uh, rendered by uh, the court. It, it does not change it. It's just to give effect to an order imposed by a court. It does, does not mean once it is registered that it becomes an order imposed by the court. That's right. I agree with that. And that's the question that this court dealt with in United Nurses of Alberta. In that case, um, which is at tab 15 of our condensed book, in that case, there was a labor board directive in relation to picketing uh, in, a, in a labor dispute. That labor board directive, once made, could be registered as an order of the court. And the specific language, if you turn to, if you turn to uh, tab 15 of our condensed book, the specific language used in the labor code is at page 193 uh, in the top center of the condensed book. It's paragraph 934 of the decision. And the court is grappling with this question here after the labor directive, the labor board directive is registered as to whether or not it can ground in the breach an order in contempt. And so, among other things, the, the court looked at it six ways from Sunday in terms of uh, whether there was a constitutional um, infringement uh, taking away of a, of a jurisdiction by the superior court in this sense, and looked at what that means. And here, the, uh, uh, Chief Justice, or Justice McLaughlin, as she then was, referred to a, a policy choice, that it's a policy choice by the, the, the provincial legislature that represents the legislative intent to have this order be recognized by filing, have the Labor Board Directive be recognized by filing and enforceable in that manner. But you know, it seems to me, because I always like to try to be practical, that the, the the device, the mechanism of, of registering an order with the court is to then be able to avail of a whole series of enforcement mechanisms as opposed to constructing a separate system of enforcement mechanisms. And so, well, why not use, you've got these enforcement mechanisms here, just let's avail of those. And, and so, it seems to me that's why uh, the, the, the legislature said, okay, when, when you've got an order of the BC Securities Commission, some of them at least can be uh, brought before the court and they, they become thereby enforceable via that mechanism. Makes perfect practical sense. But it comes back to the point made by my colleagues. Is that thereby imposed by the court or is the court merely a kind of enforcement vehicle? And if it is truly merely an enforcement vehicle, then the question is, can you shoehorn it into the, the wording of imposed by a court, or does imposed by a court comport with it or carry with it the notion that the court itself has made a determination? And it is the result of that determination by the court itself which gives rise to the imposition. So, Justice Rowe, I think the answer to your question is that imposed does not mean decided. 
It doesn't require here a decision by the court to be made to, to, to uh, have that effect, to incorporate and to make available those enforcement mechanisms. It's not a matter of, and, and there was some discussion in the, in the Alberta Court of Appeal, there was some discussion about the, the, the concept of supervision. Must there be a supervision? And there is no supervision under 163.1. And in my submission, that's not the issue. There, there is supervision in terms of appeal. You don't need, in order to give full effect to the word imposed, to have that supervision by, by interpreting super, imposed to mean decided. That's not the language that's used. There is other language in the statute that refers to judicial decision in, in 178.1c, and that's not the word chosen here imposed is by operation of law once filed that decision is recognized as a judgment of the court and all proceedings may be taken on it and it has the same force and effect it is imposed in the sense of for the the the, the plain meaning of the words which is forcing the obeyance of that decision may i just ask you in in relation to 1781 a um, we're focused on the word imposed, but when I look at the, the, the 10 or so uh, exemptions, they seem to be quite particular in the sense of specific, directed to different policy objectives, but specific. And when I look at sub A, what are we supposed to make of the or any debt arising of a recognizance or bail? I mean, we have, uh, you know, scholars like Janicera and, and, uh, and uh, Justice Morowitz writing extrajudicially saying this only applies to criminal and quasi-criminal. Um, and I, I haven't heard what we're supposed to do with, the, with the, the remaining part there of a recognizance or bail, which seems to put us squarely in a criminal type of context. So in my submission, that, that piece, uh, dealing with recognizance or bail, doesn't modify the entire application of the section. It doesn't change that section into meaning only a criminal law section. What it refers to is the type of financial obligation that's represented by the debt arising out of a, a bail or recognizance. It's not a fine, it's not a restitution order, it's not a penalty, it's a separate type of debt that arises in those circumstances, a separate type of public obligation, which is captured as well within the criminal law, quasi-criminal. But it can, uh, it can shed light, what my colleague Justice Martin is referring to, it can shed light about what type of restitution orders are contemplated, because the criminal code contemplates in the provisions regarding sentencing, the possibility to impose restitution orders. So the fact that we have those words after can shed light on the fact that restitution orders here are those imposed uh, by a court dealing with a criminal offense. It can, but there, the, legit, the parliament, parliament also chose the word any, any debt or liability, or any, any fine penalty or restitution order arising, and yeah. then refers to the uh, debt in the bail context, which is a different type of financial obligation. And so in my submission, though it's tacked on there, it doesn't modify the use of the word any uh, at the beginning of the sections. So as I look down the list, you know, A through, um, well, the long list, yes. <laughs> uh, three of them refer to the role uh, of the court as opposed to the type of debt or liability. A has imposed by a court, 
A.1 says any award of damages by a court in civil proceedings. And C says any liability arising under a judicial decision. Three different ways of referring to a court's role in relation to liability. What are we to make of that? Well, in my submission, this is where you, you look in this particular context to what the statutory scheme that gives rise to the penalty, fine, or restitution order, what that intends. And, and both the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act should be interpreted in light of that intention. And here in the Securities Act, the intention is that the, the using, making use of the administrative scheme with its expertise and its efficiencies and all of the things that this court has said represent the principal manifestation of state action in the lives of yeah. Canadians. I guess I was coming at it less from the Commission's legislation and more from the BIA because in 178 we have three different categories of ways in which liabilities or, or, or penalties or whatever kinds of orders involve the court. That's right. And they're expressed in three different ways and I was hoping you might help me on, uh, in terms of what we're to make by the, and so the different choices. One says imposed by a court, the other one is damages by a court in civil proceedings and the other one uh, as I said, is in a judicial decision. And so in my submission, the difference between the first two is the difference between the public and the private law. Uh, A.1 deals with private law damages. A does not deal with private law damages. And so that reference to uh, 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 by a court in civil proceedings uh, makes that delineation. Um, with respect to under a judicial decision and C, in my submission, what you can take from that is that imposed it does not mean decided. If it meant decided, if it meant it had to be a 157 or 155 application under the Securities Act in front of a court making that decision, then those same words, judicial decision, could have been used. But Parliament didn't do that. What Parliament uh, intended was that the legislative scheme that gives rise to the fine, penalty, or restitution order be interpreted and, and applied with reference to the operation of law, which arises in, it does arise in many different statutes, by the filing of the, uh, of, of the decision with the court. I have one minute remaining, and I'd like to echo my, my colleague, Mr. Roberts' comments. It goes back to the, to the kneecapping issue. Under both 178.1a and 178.1e. The uh, sanctions ordered by the Commission are intended to deter misconduct. If the appellants, who are unscrupulous traders, and that's the phrasing in Branch, that's, that's the preeminent goal that this court said in Branch, the Securities Commission is intended to protect the protection of our economy, the preeminence of that uh, uh, goal is tied to the unscrupulous trader and protecting the public against the unscrupulous trader. And if the, the uh, 178.1a or e are interpreted to permit the unscrupulous trader to avoid these types of obligations, then the deterrence purpose of the Securities Act is undermined. The integrity of the bankruptcy and insolvency scheme is undermined because it's clearly not Parliament's intent to permit the unscrupulous trader 
the appellants in these circumstances to avoid those obligations. And so we urge upon you to dismiss the appeal and to give effect to the Commission's orders both in A and E. Those are my submissions. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Susan Kinnan. Yes, thank you, Justices. 178.1 is an enforcement vehicle, to borrow a term, that serves a different purpose than 172. It's worth noting that the Crown for private debts shares peri passu and is usually an unsecured creditor under Section 86 and 87 of the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act. To rely on 172 conditional discharges unnecessarily extends the bankruptcy process, whereas 178 does something different. You get your discharge for all the creditors, but you deal with the state regarding the debts that survive. It's worth noting with regard to the size of fines that you can still get large fines on prosecution rather than under an AMP order. In Maloney, this court said, financial rehabilitation also has its limits. These provisions demonstrate Parliament's attempt to balance financial rehabilitation with other policy objectives. Each exception reflects a social policy that is different from the fresh start principle and takes precedence over it for debts of that nature. Enforcement of these debts outweighs any benefit to society from their release. So what is that overriding social policy for A and for E? For A, as has been mentioned, it protects fines and penalties for offenses against the state. Master Fundet called this an administration of justice concept. And since he wrote that, the administration of justice has evolved the administrative state, courts under the charter, and charter bound, in some cases, imposed penalties for conduct in respect of an offense. The social policy is deterrence, respect for the law. These public law penalties may be deemed court orders by federal or provincial statute for enforcement. 178.1 addresses the enforcement of those provable claims. Regarding floodgates, there are internal limits in 178.1a it is only in respect of an offense where it can be registered and where it can be deemed to be a court order. Many acts have a parallel but less efficient process to impose a fine by prosecution, and there is no question that those court orders would fall within A. Looking at the Ontario provisions, most say only where an AMP has not been paid can it be registered as an order, and that is a very small minority of cases where it's very egregious there is an even smaller minority where non-payment is due to bankruptcy. Even fewer statutes allow an AMP in respect of E, false pretenses and fraudulent misrepresentation. Not giving effect to the provincial intent that an order be enforceable means that most parking and speeding fine orders survived because they are imposed by a court, but fines for pollution or for abuse in long-term care homes would not. Imposed, as my friend mentioned, does not mean scrutinized. It means giving force to something, force over someone. The word judicial, as Justice Karakatsanis just noted, is not found in A, though it is found in C. Hinging A on judicial scrutiny releases debts based on process, not conduct, and it means penalties for the same conduct go unenforced. unenforced. Parliament expanded the scope of A in 1992 adopting the words other orders similar in nature, and the Standing Committee referred to Victims' Compensation Acts, which is an administrative scheme in many cases across the country. 
Parliament chose in respect of an offence, not on conviction of an offence, and left court and defence undefined. Why undefined? Because Parliament was attempting to capture any fine or penalty from conduct in respect of an offence against the state. Penalties at one time only imposed on criminal conviction are now within the power of an efficient, accessible, parallel system of justice. This court affirms the general deterrence purpose of such penalties in Cardaway. Section 12 of the Interpretation Act directs an interpretation that attains the statute's objects. Objects is plural. Professor Sullivan and Halsbury's and the Court of Appeal below warn, don't read the exceptions so narrowly that you do not give effect to Parliament's purpose. Here, the federal purpose of A is complementary to the provincial legislative intent for statutes that deem penalties to be court orders. Polluters, payday loan sharks, long-term care home abusers, there's no benefit to society from release of these penalties. And it is the same in the case of E. Neither A nor E requires a conviction. They are broader. You don't need a court finding of fraud and the factual findings can be looked at by the court. On principle, courts show deference to the findings of tribunals and there's no mention of victims in E. It is focused on the conduct of the debtor who, they, who defrauded. In Greater Sudbury, the court warned against embedding a requirement where Parliament deliberately chose not to do so. It's not in the text of E, and there is a strong public interest in deterring fraudulent conduct and ensuring that offences against the state where financial penalties are imposed, that those are enforceable to give effect to the role of the administrative state in the justice system and the complementary provincial legislative intent as well as Parliament's social policy that these financial consequences stick. Thank you. Thank you. Aaron Welsh. Chief Justice, Justices, BC's submissions will be with respect to the foundational importance of the third objective of the BIA. Much has been said about two of the objectives of the BIA, the equitable distribution of the debtor's assets to their creditors, and the financial rehabilitation of the debtor. Professor Wood, in the second edition of his text, describes a third fundamental objective of the BIA as being concerned with preventing fraud and abuse of the bankruptcy system, promoting commercial morality, and protecting the credit system. This third fundamental objective is foundational. It's foundational for two reasons. First, it has been an objective of bankruptcy legislation since the statute of bankrupts was introduced by Henry VIII to deal with fraudulent debtors. Second, it is difficult to accomplish the other two objectives without this objective being firmly in place. For example, it's difficult for there to be an equitable distribution of a debtor's assets to their creditors if bankruptcy has allowed the debtor to hide or transfer their assets beyond the reach of the bankruptcy trustee. This court in Slattery noted that the bankruptcy process is aimed at the proper protection of debtor, creditor, and public interests. BC submits that preventing fraud and abuse of the bankruptcy system, promoting commercial morality, and protecting the credit system are all about protecting public interests. And in fact, if one looks at the language of the subsection at issue here, we'll see language which signals that Parliament is concerned with protecting public interests. This is because section 178 sub 1 sub e uses the language of false pretenses, criminal code language. 
BC submits that the use of this language demonstrates Parliament intended to capture claims that violate the public interest, claims precisely of the type at issue here. No detrimental reliance is required. This shows that Parliament is concerned with commercial morality. If a court is solely focused on the debtor fresh start, the court can, in BC submission, upset Parliament's delicate balancing act. The Alberta Court of Appeals decision in Hannigan is a recent example of this. The court in Hennig does not consider the foundational objective of the BIA, maintaining the integrity of the bankruptcy system and promoting commercial morality. The court's narrow focus on debtor rehabilitation via a fresh start means that the bankrupt is allowed to walk free from debts resulting from failures to file insider trading reports, failures to disclose secret commissions, and market manipulation, among other things. The court allows the debtor to walk free from these debts, even though the court does not disagree with the chamber's judge that the bankrupt's conduct is morally reprehensible. Is it, is it quite accurate to say that this is a kind of get out of jail free card, so to speak, when what you have is the discretion as to whether or not to discharge the bankrupt or to do so with conditions. Is that not an alternative mechanism with which to uh, deal with these matters as opposed to interpreting, I'm thinking in particular of 1A, uh, in, in a sense of, of denying uh, a judge dealing with a bankruptcy matter of discretion in this regard. I mean, I think we should assume, work on the assumption that judges are going to be, use good sense and be open to valid arguments by the Crown. Thank you. The, the, the difficulty is that in many ways, a discharge application is a blunt instrument. Um, and, and that's because at the discharge hearing, all unsecured creditors will be treated the same. So if this is merely an unsecured debt, then it will be treated the same as all of the others. Um, so the, the discretion that might appear to be there actually isn't there to the extent that might meet the goal of protecting the um, integrity of the bankruptcy system. The other thing I would note on that is that it's interesting that the BIA includes fraud in both the discharge provisions and in the uh, provisions at issue here. And, and in my submission, that indicates an intent from Parliament, a signal that this is actually quite important to Parliament. The, just to sum up, it, ha it has to be asked in the Hennig decision how it promotes commercial morality or how it pro protects the integrity of the bankruptcy system. BC submits that the approaches in the Hennig decision, uh, Court, of, Court of Keen's bench decision by Madam Justice uh, Romaine, and the approach of the Manitoba Court of Appeal and the St. Rose decision, that those uh, approaches should be preferred. And they should be preferred because they're more consistent with this fundamental objective of the BIA and better protect the integrity of the bankruptcy system and better protect the public interest. Thank you those very much. Jared Biden. Thank you. Good morning. Saskatchewan submissions focus on Section 178 1E of the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act, and particularly today, restitutionary orders imposed by provincial securities regulators that may be able to fall within the scope of this exemption. 
one point I'd like to make is that different provinces have set up these restitutionary types of orders in different ways. As you've heard today in British Columbia, the restitutionary orders take the form of a disgorgement remedy followed by a statutory claims process where victims of illegal market activity can be compensated. As we outline in our factum, Saskatchewan Securities Regulator, the Financial and Consumers Affairs Authority, can hold a hearing and then order those who engage in violations of Saskatchewan securities law to compensate their victims for losses caused by their illegal activity directly. And we would say that regardless of the approach selected by a particular province, restitutionary remedies have a close nexus with victims, such that if this court were to incorporate the concepts or principles of direct or deserving victims into the test for Section 178.1e, as the Alberta Court of Appeal did in Hennig, for example, these types of restitutionary orders intended to benefit victims generally should be able to meet that standard. This does not mean that every restitutionary order will necessarily fall within the scope of Section 178.1e. It will depend on the facts of the particular case and whether the restitutionary order results from property or services the bankrupt acquired through false pretenses or fraudulent misrepresentation as various members of the court have pointed out today. So if, for example, a victim suffers a loss, but the specific debtor in question didn't obtain property or services, didn't obtain a profit, for example, then Section 178.1e would not apply to the restitutionary order. Deceit in the air, or even loss in the air, is not enough to trigger the exemption. It's still a narrow exemption focused on the debtor acquiring a tangible benefit. Um, and for that reason, and as we submit in our factum, this court should not incorporate the concepts of direct victimization or deserving victims into the exemption, in large part because it's narrow and it's focused on the bankrupt's conduct. It is not focused on the identity of creditors and whether they're the debts owing to them may be deserving of an exemption to the fresh start principle. It is focused on conduct that, as Justice Martin indicated, garners high opprobrium. The provision reflects the determination by Parliament that, um, to paraphrase Lady Macbeth, some spots don't wash out. That debtors should not be able to enjoy the fruits the tangible fruits of their deceitful conduct. And subject to any questions, those are the submissions of the Saskatchewan Attorney General.
Okay, so if it um, doesn't work for the moment, we'll be back. Is Michael Befort uh, available? Okay, we'll take yes, a break. Yes, Chief Justice. No? Okay. Who are you? <laughs> um, Michael Beforth for Thanks. the Alberta Securities Commission. Very well. Chief Justice. <laughs> Please go ahead. <laughs> uh, with, with, with that, welcome. Uh, good afternoon, Chief Justice, Justices. I, together with my colleagues, Raphael Egan and Brandon Barnes-Trickett, up here for the Alberta Securities Commission. My submissions will focus on Section 178.1e of the Act. I do not intend to address how the language of that section should be interpreted as we've heard able submissions from other counsel. Rather, I will focus my comments on the policy objectives that underlie both the BIA and securities legislation and the consequences that will flow and serve to undermine those objectives if this court agrees with the narrow interpretation of this section espoused in the Hennig decision that a debtor must make fraudulent statements directly to a creditor in order for the exemption to apply to that creditor's debt. The authorities are clear that the bankruptcy regime seeks to strike a balance between allowing a fresh start to an honest but unfortunate debtor and upholding Parliament's decision to ensure that certain debts enumerated in Section 178 remain enforceable against a bankrupt because of the societal impact that would result if they were released upon discharge. As set out in the Girard decision, which has been cited repeatedly by appellate authorities, including both in Hennig and the decision under appeal, these debts are the kind which society considers to be of a quality that outweighs any possible benefit to society in having a bankrupt be released of those debts. And the corresponding exemptions in Section 178 reflect Parliament's policy decision that holding a bankrupt accountable for those debts is more important than the clean slate offered by a discharge. And against that backdrop, we submit it is clear that there is no principled or policy-based rationale to distinguish between a debt arising out of a fraudulent misstatement made directly to a victimized creditor and a debt owing to a securities commission who prosecuted the debtor for the very same fraud. The underlying fraud is no less morally repugnant and the policy objective to prevent the bankruptcy system from being abused by fraudulent actors is no less applicable. And this policy objective is also consistent with the statutory mandate of securities commissions to protect the public and deter conduct that would undermine public confidence in the capital markets, such as market manipulation or fraud. Commissions do so in part by imposing AMPs, which this court has recognized in Cardaway Resources as being a reasonable method of deterrence. As such, permitting AMPs levied against fraudulent actors to survive bankruptcy under Section 178.1e upholds the policy objectives underlying both insolvency and securities litigation and would ensure consistent treatment of fraudulent actors in the capital markets pre- and post-bankruptcy. In contrast, if this court accepts the narrow interpretation of Section 178.1e advanced in Hennig, the deterrent effect of administrative penalties will be severely diminished, as will be the ability of securities commissions to dissuade bad actors from taking advantage of investors, as the bankruptcy regime will provide them with, to use Justice Rowe's uh, phrase, a get-out-of-jail-free card from any sanctions imposed by commissions. And this is not a hypothetical consideration. It is already happening in Alberta, as evidenced by the Aitkins and Kitts cases that were detailed in the Commission's intervention materials. 
In those cases, two individuals were found to have carried out significant frauds on the Alberta investing public and were ordered by the commission to pay administrative penalties and, in Mr. Kitt's case, a significant disgorgement order. Both of those individuals declared bankruptcy in July 2022 following the Hennig decision. We've heard talk uh, of floodgates today, uh, and our submission is that if the Hennig rationale is expanded across all provinces, the more imminent and serious floodgate that risks opening is that of bad actors in other jurisdictions taking advantage of the insolvency regime to escape the consequences of their frauds on the market. And that is an outcome that this, short, this court should seek to avoid. Thank you. Uh, is uh, Devin uh, Eag available or? Yes, uh, thank you, Mr. Chief Justice Welcome. and uh, Justices. Um, I wanna begin by highlighting uh, some of the points that have already been made with respect to Montreal and Deloitte. Um, in that case, the court interpreted section 178.1E of the BIA in the course of construing a nearly identical provision under the Companies Creditors Arrangement Act. It, uh, it turned to section 178.1E because the provision was, in the words of the Chief Justice and Justice Cote, uh, analogous in every respect to the provision before it. And it wrote that uh, both provisions require that the debtor have made a representation to the creditor. In my submission, the court needn't go any further on the question of whether subsection E requires a direct link. It's already said that it does. Uh, none of the parties in this appeal have asked that Montreal and Deloitte be revisited. It remains good law. And in my submission, it's dispositive with respect to the legal issue raised um, under subsection E. Montreal and Deloitte also allows this court to decide that issue without the risk of upsetting the other provisions in section 178.1. Of particular concern for law societies is the neighboring subsection D. This covers debts arising out of fraud, embezzlement, misappropriation, or defalcation while acting in a fiduciary capacity or in the province of Quebec as a tr trustee or administrator of the, the property of others. Uh, the provision matters for law societies, given that lawyers are per se fiduciaries towards their clients, and given the frequency with which issues like fraud or misappropriation arise in disciplinary proceedings. Uh, these features make subsection D the likeliest provision of section 178 uh, to assist law societies when a member makes an assignment into bankruptcy. But subsection D is not without controversy. As both our factum and the factum of the Osgood Investor Protection Clinic show, Legitimate disputes exist over what the provision means. Uh, if the court addresses subsection D at all in this appeal, it would be better in my submission uh, to leave its controversies for another case when subsection D is squarely before you and when its nuances can be fully canvassed. Uh, the controversy raised by my friends, the Osgood Investor Protection Clinic concerns whether the words in a fiduciary capacity apply to the entire subsection and I'll, I'll leave that issue for them to address. Another controversy raised in our factum is what courts should make of subsection D's use of the English words arising out of, as opposed to subsections E use of the words resulting from. In their dictionary definitions, to result means to follow as a logical consequence, while arise means to begin to exist or to originate. And so one way to make sense of this difference would be to read subsection D to capture debts that originate in the specified conduct regardless of whether there's a direct link between the conduct and the creditor. Uh, in other words, by using the words arising out of instead of resulting from, 
Subsection D arguably opens up a greater space for third-party regulatory bodies than does subsection E. Now, granted, this is complicated by the French text, which uses the common term résultant de in both D and E. Um, and typically, where there's a difference between the English and the French, the narrower meaning, here captured by the words résultant de, should be the one that prevails. Uh, but that meaning should still be checked against legislative intent. Um, and there are reasons to think that it would not satisfy the test here. For one thing, the term arising out of could serve to compensate uh, for subsection D requiring a fiduciary relationship on top of the specified misconduct, at least on the so-called orthodox view of that provision. And in 2007, when Parliament chose to add the term resulting from into subsection E's English text, it did not change the wording of subsection D, which suggests that it meant for that difference to remain meaningful. So with this and other issues at stake, uh, the court should exercise great caution with respect to subsection D in this appeal. Uh, Montreal and Deloitte, as I've said, allows the court to avoid the provision altogether. Uh, but if the court chooses to address subsection D in its judgment, I say it should do so mindful of the subsection's controversies, and it should reserve those controversies to be addressed in a more appropriate case. Thank you. Aaron Olt. Good afternoon. Across Canada, securities regulators like the OSC are entrusted with a mandate to protect investors and the stability of our capital markets, which is a goal of paramount importance as this court in, observed in Branch. And breaches of the Securities Act can have devastating impact. They can leave harmed investors with financial and mental scars that will never heal, as the Ontario Court of Justice put it in OSC and Brunei. Thus, in sanctioning those who breach the Securities Act, deterrence is a principal consideration. This is true whether they are being sentenced for a regulatory offense, as in Tiffin, or subjected to administrative sanctions, as in Cardaway. And whether a sanction will have the intended deterrent effect depends in least in part on its enforceability. Section 178.1a of the BIA is Parliament's recognition of the overarching importance of the enforcement of sanctions for those that break the law. Monetary sanctions that are ordered by capital markets tribunals are at least other orders similar in nature to fines, penalties, or restitution orders. Those sanctions, as this court put it recently in Sharp and AMF, are public interest remedies. They're not restorative nor punitive. And indeed, regulatory proceedings are neither civil nor criminal, but sui generis, as this court observed in Abermetz. As a result, it needs to be recognized that securities commissions aren't ordinary creditors. They're regulators acting in the public interest. And the discharge of public interest remedies via bankruptcy would risk undermining the public interest upon which those sanctions are based. Picking up on a question Justice Martin asked the respondent earlier today, it's important that the quantum of the awards at issue in this case not overwhelm the analysis. Monetary sanctions will vary depending on the circumstances of each case, including the scale and seriousness of the misconduct and the amounts wrongfully obtained. In other cases, regulatory sanctions might occupy a much smaller proportion of a bankrupt's liabilities, and in this way, it can be seen that Section 172 of the BIA is not a proper substitute for an application of the surviving ab obligations in 178. Simply, Parliament intended that certain obligations would survive discharge, and the presence of surviving obligation within a bankrupt's estate should not otherwise disentitle a worthy bankrupt to discharge of the balance of their liabilities. 
Returning to the text of 178.1a, adopting the interpretation of imposed by a court that was found below isn't justified for the reasons articulated in our factum, but also because it could lead to very strange results. For example, appeals from decisions of com securities commissions across the country go before the courts. As an example, under Section 38 of the Alberta Securities Act, if the Alberta Court of Appeal had found error with the sanctions that the ASC awarded against Mr. Hennig, that court could have substituted its own decision for that of the commission. In that instance, the interpretation of the courts below would support the conclusion that that sanction order was imposed by a court. The question of whether a sanction order, a public interest remedy, should survive bankruptcy shouldn't turn on whether or not it was subject to a successful appeal. Well, then that's a very good argument for saying that uh, an appeal judgment is not one that is imposed by a court. I've taken careful note of your submission. But the, the example I posit to you, Justice Rowe, is, this, is, is one where the appellate court substitutes its own decision. So there would be no first decision uh, of, the, of the sanction other than that appellate court's decision, which is a power that is granted to the Alberta Court of Appeal under Section 38 of its Securities Act. We say in sum that Section 178 isn't 1A isn't discretionary for good reason. It doesn't require consideration of the relative egregiousness of the misconduct underlying the fine, etc., which is sensible because regulatory offenses are clearly within its scope and regulatory offenses are not prosecuted because they are inherently abhorrent, but because unregulated activity would expose society to dangerous conditions, as this court noted in Wholesale Travel and the Ontario Court of Appeal noted in Tiffin. Compliance is necessary to achieve the protection of the public, not to sanction inherently abhorrent misconduct. And lastly, with respect, we say that the argument that, that recognizing that public interest remedies survive bankruptcy will imperil the bankruptcy system appears speculative. The availability of AMPs within the regulatory sphere for conduct constituting offense does not tell you anything about the frequency or quantum of AMPs at issue in bankruptcies. And on the other hand, recognizing that public interest remedies granted in respect of offenses survive bankruptcy under 178-1A is harmonious with Parliament's purpose in ensuring that those that break the law remain subject to sanctions for that misconduct and respect the division of labor uh, allocated to administrative tribunals and the courts under the Securities Act uh, in force across this country. Thank you very much. Stephen Aylward. Good afternoon. Thank you, Chief Justice. Uh, the Osgood Investor Protection Clinic intervenes in this case to emphasize that there is no fresh start for the victims of fraud who may see their life savings or retirement plans wiped out. Uh, they don't get to push a reset button and start again. When we look at the original purpose of bankruptcy law, it was never intended to serve as a means uh, of giving fraudsters a fresh start at the expense of their victims. Uh, this has been the case uh, since the development of the discharge bar, and, and it's, which has its origins in US and UK bankruptcy legislation in the 17th and 18th, uh, uh, 17th, 18th and 19th centuries. And our factum cites decisions uh, of the English Court of Appeal and of the U.S. Supreme Court uh, that both make this point very forcefully. Uh, many of the interpretative challenges arising in this case uh, are a result of the long and somewhat complex legislative history. So I'd just like to focus on some of those issues. 
Justice Karakatsanis, you asked this morning, uh, why does subsection E use both false pretenses and fraudulent uh, uh, misrepresentation uh, in that subsection? And the answer to that lies in the legislative history. Uh, so the wording in subsection E and subsection D can both be traced back uh, to the U.S. Bankruptcy Act of 1898. They're taken almost verbatim from that statute and its subsequent iterations. And if you look at what Congress's purpose was when it enacted those uh, provisions, it was to have a broad a discharge bar for fraud-related debts as possible. And there was this was what you would call a belt and braces approach, where they used a lot of overlapping concepts. There was a bar for, on discharge for fraud, embezzlement, uh, defalcation while acting in a fiduciary capacity, uh, as well as for fraudulent uh, representations and uh, obtaining property by false pretenses. So the uh, use of the wide variety of different terms uh, reflects a broader intention by the uh, legislature to exclude all fraud-related debts from bankruptcy discharge. Uh, the BIA is a bit of a Frankenstein statute um, section 172 is uh, a provision that comes directly from the UK bankruptcy legislation, whereas section 178 comes from the US bankruptcy uh, legislation. The, uh, we, we've given you sort of the detailed history of these provisions in our factum, but the high level view of it is we uh, start with the US, UK Bankruptcy Act of 1914, which contained a uh, broad bar against discharge of debts incurred through, quote, fraud or fraudulent breach of trust. That's the same language that survives today in section 173 sub 1 sub K. Uh, but that language in the UK Act was also used as the basis of, the, of a uh, discharge bar. Uh, so what would now be in subsection uh, 178.1 D and E. Uh, this language is extremely broad and uh, clearly applies to any fraud-related debt. It doesn't create any of the challenges that arise from uh, the current text of the legislation. So in 1919, Parliament adopts word for word the uh, English Act of 1914. Then in 1949, Parliament decides that they're going to uh, change courses and instead we're going to substitute the discharge bar from the American legislation. And so that's when this false pretenses, fraudulent uh, uh, representation language comes in. Uh, and the result of this is that the Canadian Parliament has substituted the broad discharge bar from the UK legislation for the broad uh, or arguably broader discharge bar from the US legislation. Importantly, nowhere in this process is there any indication that Parliament had intended to soften or weaken the discharge bar as it applies in those other uh, jurisdictions. Uh, finally, the idea that the um, Section 178 is somehow secondary to or subordinate to Section 178 uh, or to 172 is belied by the uh, legislative history of these provisions. Uh, because the uh, Justice Rowe, uh, take your point that Parliament uh, should be taken not to limit judicial discretion unless there's a reason for doing so. Uh, here there was a reason for doing so, is that Parliament did not want courts to have the discretion to uh, 
uh, take away the uh, right to compensation of the victims of fraud. Thank you very uh, much. And that's, okay, thank you. Thank you. Uh, Adam Murray. Good afternoon, Chief Justice and Justices. CARIP is a national association whose membership includes the overwhelming majority of licensed insolvency trustees. These are the professionals that administer bankruptcies. I believe that the court has our position that the scheme and purpose of the BIA's discharge provisions favor a narrow interpretation of Section 178.1 because the broader application of 178.1, the less room that is left for judicial discretion on discharge under Section 172. So all I will say on that issue is the options before the court today are not all or nothing. They are mandatory or discretionary, and we say that the BIA objective of balancing competing policy objectives that this court has recognized in Maloney favors discretion under Section 172. Subject to any questions on that submission, I will focus on CARIP's position that the purpose of Section 178.1 is creditor protection as opposed to focusing on the conduct of the debtor. This is apparent from the, the effect of Section 178.1, which confers a benefit on specific creditors by permitting them to continue to enforce their debts as compared to benefiting the unsecured creditors broadly. And here I want to clarify that on a conditional discharge, there isn't an adjustment of individual claims of creditors in the bankruptcy, but the court can order that a payment, usually based on a percentage of the total debt, must be made for the bankrupt to receive their discharge, and that payment is paid out peri passu to all creditors as opposed to benefiting a single creditor. Comparing the language of Section 178.1 with the Section 173 facts further supports CARIP's position. 178.1 uh, refers to different types of debt, and this specifically brings into focus the relationship between the creditor and the debtor. By contrast, Section 173 facts focus squarely on the conduct of the debtor. In CARIP's submission, a master rationale can be derived for all of the Section 178.1 exceptions, and this is discussed at paragraphs 19 to 22 of our factum. In short, Section 178.1 permits a creditor to continue its claim where the creditor is incapable of protecting itself or, for policy reasons, should not be required to protect itself from the liability. The impact this has on Section 178.1e is that creditors must have a direct relationship with the misrepresentation that is made from the bankrupt. For this reason, 178.1e should only apply where the creditor is directly victimized by the misrepresentation. Justice Martin, you asked the appellant if there's a different analysis for disgorgement orders, and in our submission, it is the same creditor protection principle, but it leads to a different result. Narrow construction arises from the purpose and scheme of the Act. The construction should not be so narrow as to defeat the purpose of the exception. And for Section E, the question is, who is getting paid? A disgorgement order where the Commission is acting as an intermediary for victims does fall within the ambit of Section 178.1e, so long as two conditions are met. First, the disgorgement must be composed of claims of individual victims whose claims would otherwise fall within the ambit of 178.1e. And second, the Commission must implement a process to pay the funds to those victims. This satisfies the purpose of the exception because the effective result is the same, that the victims who have 178.1e claims get paid. I want to address the distinction between a false pretense and a fraudulent misrepresentation. And unfortunately, I think that the court is in a position where one of the two expressions will be redundant. A fraudulent misrepresentation has all of the elements of false pretense, but added elements of detrimental reliance and perhaps that a misrep needs to be a statement or omission, whereas fraudulent pretenses could just be actions. So if you give a wider interpretation to the, 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 the uh, false uh, 
sorry, uh, false pretense, then there's no work for fraudulent misrepresentation to do. But for the purpose of our position, of CARF's position, we agree that a disgorgement order and the claims of the victims fall within false pretenses. It's not necessary for a statutory market, uh, for statutory market manipulation claim to demonstrate that each shareholder specifically relied on specific representations. They could still have a statutory cause of action that would survive under 178.1e. With respect to section 178.1a, my friend for the respondent said that you should be satisfied that administrative debts should survive because, and he said, the culpability level is really high. And my friend said that if that survives, so be it. In this case, $13.5 million of administrative penalties were awarded, and that is a life sentence for most Canadians. We are talking about creating a subclass of Canadians who are exiled from the legitimate economy because they will never make a dollar over the table that does not get turned over to the commission. So be it is not a just standard for the quantum of the penalty. Could I ask you about your, could I ask you about your, your, sorry to interrupt you, uh, Mr. Hayden, it's just Mr. Murray, but your, can I take you back to 178.1e and your uh, argument about direct victimization? I take it that is because resulting from is a causation test. Deloitte tells us to have a narrow interpretation of the exceptions, and so it is a causation test that is narrow, and having regard to the other uh, exceptions in 178, they are all uh, vulnerable uh, uh, creditors. And so the combination of those factors leads to this requirement of direct victimization. Is that, is that a fair summary? I agree with a, a slight proviso. I think my friends at the, at the commission would say that the Crown under, seven, uh, under A is not a vulnerable creditor. And I would say it's because creditor protection in the instance of the Crown on a punitive penalty is sort of different. Normally creditor protection really means uh, protecting the economic interest of a creditor in being paid. And that applies to effectively all of the other uh, section 178.1 exceptions. For the Crown, their interest is in the punitive penalty that the, the you know, if you had a criminal uh, uh, judgment where either you could send someone to jail or there could be an imprisonment or there could be a fine uh, and you choose to impose a fine, then it's important that fine be paid. So, yes, but with the proviso that there's a, a sort of a 178.1a perhaps at, at first glance fits awkwardly into that framework, but we say it does fit because of a different uh, rationale behind the creditor protection in that instance. Thank you very much. Thank you. Any reply, uh, Mr. Reedman? Uh, no reply from the appellants. Thank you very much. Thank counsel for, for submissions. The court will take the case under advisement.